In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia. The person who takes every opportunity to pick on others is often mistakenly called sadistic. In reality, this person is a misdirected masochist who is working towards his own destruction. The reason a person viciously strikes out against you is because they are afraid of you or what you represent or are resentful of your happiness. That's a quote from Anton LaVey, founder of the Church of Satan. Is that what you'd expect to hear from the guy who wrote the Satanic Bible? The black pope, Beelzebub's high priest, giving pretty solid counseling advice. It doesn't reference burning your enemy alive with hellfire or setting a legion of demons upon him to gnash and tear apart their immortal soul. I mean, he doesn't even reference having an imp bite him on their ankles or something. Not what I expected. Today's episode, not what I expected going in at all. And I love it when that happens. I love it when I was totally wrong about what I thought something was. I thought one way my entire life, do a bunch of research, and then like, oh, okay. Okay, it's the exact opposite of what I was thinking. You're going to learn a lot about Satanism today. And if you aren't already pretty familiar with it, I think you're going to be pretty surprised. We're going to examine Anton's legend in today's timeline. We'll go over the tenets of the faith he formalized, including the 11 satanic rules of the earth, the nine satanic sins, and the evolution of the church over the decades. I'll also walk you through the most infamous of satanic rituals, the Black Mass. Cue the spooky music. Cue the goosebumps. Feel the flames of hell. It's Halloween week, and who better to suck on than the worshipers of the Dark Lord himself? Or does Satanists even worship Satan? Find out. Find out today on a Hail Lucifina edition of Time Suck. This is Michael McDonald, and you're listening to Time Suck. You're listening to Time Suck. Hello and happy Monday, Cult of the Curious. I'm Dan Cummins, Suck Nasty, Triple M's Roadie, Nimrod's Altar Boy, Lucifina's Sacrificial Lamb, and you are listening to Time Suck. Recording in the Suck Dungeon today, gang's all here, Reverend Dr. Horsecock Johnson Paisley, High Priestess Harmony Valley Camp, Script Keeper, Zach Flannery, Queen of the Suck, Lindsay Cummins, Lindsay the co-host of Scared to Death, another Bad Magic Productions podcast. And uh, you know, if you want to spook your story, then today's Suck for Halloween, check out Scared to Death. Making this week's episode about Satanism, uh, you know, as well on that show. A tale of actual satanic ritual murder, a tale of satanic possession. So you want the spooks, you head over to Scared to Death. You want a deep dive on Anton LaVey and the Church of Satan's beliefs. Well, you stay right here. It's going to get weird and fun today. Uh, big thanks to, again to all the space lizards. All hail the space lizards. Last reminder that we're giving $3,200 this month on behalf of Patreon to Holding Out Help. HoldingOutHelp.org provides those who come from a polygamous culture the resources needed to transition from isolation to independence. Link in the episode description if you'd like to learn more or donate more yourself. And thank you again for the recent ratings and reviews for Time Suck and also for Scared to Death. Every rating and review helps so much. And you guys have really been spreading the suck. Wow, this last week in Portland, Oregon was fucking crazy. So many Time Suckers. So many Scared to Death listeners too, man. Five sold out shows. Added to six, just a few days ahead of the shows. A solid hundred suckers came out to that early show on Saturday as well. 
So please keep tagging the preview videos at, uh, you know, at Time Suck Podcast or Scared to Death Podcast on Facebook and Instagram. Tag friends, share those vids so new people can, you know, like what you like. Joe Paisley kills those videos. Uh, thank you if you already, already do that. And thanks again to the fans, um, uh, yeah, who came out to Portland this past week. Um, doing that again, Columbus, Ohio, Funny Bone, this Friday and Saturday, November 1st and 2nd. Looking to have a lot more fun. Then off to Comedy Works in Denver, Colorado, November 7th to the 9th, uh, to do it another time. Plus record a little special album of old bits uh, for Sirius XM. Plus going to do a live Ant Hill Kids cult time suck on the 10th. One of the last ones uh, for the year. Now let's talk about the Order of the Suck one last time. Order of the Society for the Understanding of Critical Knowledge. Order of the Suck. Head to our Time Suck Shopify store now. Be one of the first 75 to sign up to receive one of our Time Suck Freemason type stickers for your business. Now these, these stickers are only for Time Suckers who own a business or work in a business that would be cool placing the marking sticker outside of the business. And then once you receive your sticker, stick it, you know, where it's easily visible. Email in a picture of where you place that sticker to harmony at timesuckpodcast.com. And the email include the name of your business, the location, and then we can make a running list of those businesses. And then fellow time suckers can visit Order of the Suck establishments. Uh, I think that's going to be awesome. Support those who support the suck. How sweet is that? Hail Nimrod. And now it's time for Satan, Beelzebub, Baphomet, the Prince of Darkness, the King of Lies, the Great Deceiver, the Beast, the Adversary, the Pit Twizzler, the Lake of Fire, Sizzler, Goatface Killer, the Stink Fink from East Manila, the Lord of the Naughty Gourd. The Cloven Hoof Ransacker from Powder Wolf Rusty Tracker. All right, now I'm just fucking saying weird shit that rhymes. Uh, you know, most of the time, if, I'm, if I talk about Satan, you know, if, if I bring him up in day-to-day life, it's a little bit of a, not today, Satan. I have that on a little plaque in the, in the suck dungeon, but, but not today. Today I say, okay, Satan, today is the day. Let's do it. Uh, I want to I kick this off by sharing an important quote to keep in mind throughout this episode. Anton LaVey, founder of the Church of Satan, father of the, uh, you know, uh, LaVeyan Satanism, once said, I'm one hell of a liar. Most of my adult life, I've been accused of being a charlatan, a phony, an imposter. I guess that makes me about as close to what the devil's supposed to be as anyone. It's true. I lie constantly, incessantly, because I lie so often, I'd really be full of shit if I didn't keep my mouth shut and my bowels open. This quote is listed right on the Church of Satan's own website. And he's not kidding. The dude lied all of the time. Most of what we are about to learn about today has less to do with the devil, more to do with Anton LaVey's well-crafted, self-orchestrated legend. That doesn't mean it won't be interesting. It's very interesting. The founder of the Church of Satan didn't even believe in Satan that most of us think of. To quote him again, he believed, Satan represented a dark, hidden force in nature that was responsible for the workings of earthly affairs for which science and religion had no explanation and no control. And yes, I do see how through a Christian lens, that dark hidden force could absolutely be interpreted as the Christian devil. So in that sense, maybe he did worship the devil, even if he didn't think he did. I I hear you Christians. I get it. Uh, The Church of Satan is a religious organization dedicated to Satanism as codified in the Satanic Bible. And how is Satanism defined by the Church of Satan? Not like I thought it would be. The most concise and thorough summary I can find actually comes straight from the uh, Levian Satanism Wikipedia page. They sum it up the best, saying, The religion is materialist, rejecting the existence of supernatural beings, body-soul dualism, and life after death. Practitioners do not believe that Satan literally exists and do not worship him. Did not expect that. 
Instead, Satan is viewed as a positive archetype representing pride, carnality, and enlightenment. He is also embraced as a symbol of defiance against Abrahamic religions, which Levians criticize for suppressing humanity's natural instincts and encouraging irrationality. The religion propagates a naturalistic worldview, seeing mankind as animals existing in an amoral universe. It promotes a philosophy based on individualism and egoism, coupled with social Darwinism and anti-egalitarianism. Now, the Abrahamic religions are Islam, Judaism, and Christianity, by the way. And since I didn't know what egalitarianism means, I'll define that for you as well. Uh, the doctrine that all people are equal and deserve equal rights and opportunities. So, you know, Satanism does not think that people are created equal. Uh, it believes in survival of the fittest. The Darwinistic thinks that self-interest is the foundation of morality, uh, which is subject, uh, excuse me, subjective. Huh. Uh, and it sounds more like a, a selfish, but not an, not entirely irrational philosophic outlook more than a religion. So, uh, yeah, right, devil. <laughs> you tried to get me. That's not what you believe in. I fucking get it. Well, I know you eat babies. Uh, you fuck witches or orgies. Uh, you drink the blood of virgins. You just sacrifice and you, your priests transform into goats at will. I mean, come on. Come on. That's got to be true, doesn't it? Maybe they'll admit what they really believe on their official website. They have a fact page called Satanism Central. And one of the questions is, do you worship evil? Mm-hmm. Now we're getting somewhere. And when I clicked that link, fucking Baphomet himself arose in front of me in a puff of smoke. He just showed up and goes, it is evil incarnate, the great Baphomet, eater of worlds. And then he walked on his little cloven-hoofed goat feet over to my favorite chair. And he started making this horrible sound. Just, argh, argh. I was like, hey, what are you doing, Baphomet? And he was like, I'm going to sit on your chair and the stain and the smell will never come out. And I was like, why are you doing that? And he grabbed me, because I'm evil. When I'm done, I'll drink the last of your favorite gin and I'll take out your dark chocolate and you won't be able to have any more tonight because the stores that sell it in Corlean are closed for the day. I know the hours of everything, so I have a lot of knowledge and stuff. I was like, you bastard, Baphomet. You really are Satan. No, of course that didn't happen. <laughs> no, I, uh... According to their fact page, you cannot even define evil without discussing what is good. Therefore, the two are inseparable. One cannot understand darkness without experiencing light. The definition of good and evil is subject to change because it exists only as a perception. Good are the things we like. Evil are the things we dislike. It often depends on who or what you are. Here we go with that egoism again. As Diane Vera says, if you're a mouse, cats are hideous monsters. But to the pet owner, cats are heavenly. Therefore, Evil is not an essence. It is a value judgment. Ah, that actually makes a lot of sense. That makes way more sense than I was kind of hoping it would make. From a Christian point of view, Satan is evil because he represents the savage instincts they are attempting to hide or suppress. Satanists are truth seekers and desire to peek behind such labels. We look upon religion as the starter of wars and the breeder of hate and intolerance. We believe that people are intelligent enough to instill moral and ethical codes into a societal structure without a threat of an imaginary supernatural being wrecking, wreaking havoc on an offender. Huh. Okay. All right. Well, damn it. That didn't sound evil at all. Sounded very rational, actually. Shit. Am I satanic? There's a, there's a, there's a lot I agreed with right there. There's another website, thechurchofsatan.com, that doesn't seem any eviler than the one I just read from. A couple of couple little satanic church uh, website out there. Yeah, churchsatan.org. Yeah, this next one is, uh, what did I just say? I, I I wanted to remember. Oh, man. Dang it. Notes. Too many notes. Oh, yeah, churchsatan.org now. They say, 
we also regret to inform you that this is not a criminal organization. Terrorism is discouraged and physical violence is necessary only when it involves self-defense. We do not use foul language, disseminate pornography, or advocate reckless drug use. We do not promote harm to children or pets. What? Come on. You guys don't sound like evil at all. Dang it. Right? Their website didn't have anything evil on it. They had a they had a cup, they had like one picture of a couple satanic priestesses. They were topless. You know, that was about as evil as it got. The priestesses were really hot. I mean, I don't know if that makes them more evil or less evil, you know. After doing a lot of research, you know, the church of Satan seems to be uh, you know, the the source of less sex scandals and other types of scandals than many televangelists have engaged in and to have stolen less money from their faithful as well. What the fuck? The Old Testament is more violent and sex crazed than that. I mean, doesn't even seem like they promote drug-fueled orgies. I mean, they're not against orgies, but they're not demanding that you put on a goat head mask, use a cross for a dildo, dress up like a nun or a priest, and fuck a bunch of strangers' brains out. They're kind of a real bummer in that way. Or are they really evil and just trying to hide it? Well, keep listing and find out if you dare. <laughs> evil laugh. The satanic movement headed by LeVay came at a time when America was a divided nation. With the pot-smoking anti-war hippies on one side, the pro-establishment suit and tie-wearing brandy drinkers on the other, America was a hotbed for conflict and for the founding of new ideas. We recently revisited that special time in America's history with the Source family cult suck. Now, what did LeVay think of the counterculture revolution? He said, I considered the 60s and 70s a barren, aesthetically destructive era. America, especially San Francisco, was a mire of ignorance, stupidity, and egalitarianism. Loves that word. I created my own world, the Church of Satan. That's the only way I could survive. It turned out to be a real cudgel on the head of mainstream society at the time. Without us, there would have been no counterculture. All right. No shortage of ego on this guy. He sounds like kind of a tool sometimes. <laughs> he started the counterculture. Uh, not true. Very few hippie Satanists. He, he was part of it, though. He was part of it. Le- LeVay explains in his book, The Satanic Bible, that he considers all gods to be externalized representations of humankind's ego. Therefore, religionists are in essence worshiping themselves. LeVay suggests that since humankind seems to crave ritual and dogma, we are served best by eliminating the intermediary and worshiping ourselves directly. After writing the Satanic Bible in 69, LeVay continued writing a Satanic trilogy with the complete witch, later uh, renamed the Satanic Witch in 1971. Ah, better marketing, right? Probably didn't sell many copies and it was just the complete witch. And then people are like, ooh, Satanic Witch. Uh, finally, in 1972, the Satanic Rituals were published as a companion to LeVay's first book, comprehensive collection of what you know he deemed history's best authentic black magic rituals. Sounds super dark. We'll find out how dark you know all this stuff is when we go over these books and a black mass ritual in a little bit of detail later. Within a year and a half of its creation in the spring of 66, Anton's cloven-hoofed organization became the center of a media circus. LeVay became a Satanic celebrity. And then after a while, Anton got tired of simply mocking Christianity and decided to work up some of his own rituals that would be blasphemously positive and exciting. He would say, I realized there was a whole gray area between psychiatry and religion that had been largely untapped. He may not have believed in God or ironically Satan, but like a cultist and previous suck subject, Aleister Crowley, before him, he did believe in real applied magic. He was, he was an interesting dude, a lot of interesting thoughts. So let's dig in and get to know Anton LaVey as we partake in this very important cult of the curious ritual, the Time Suck Timeline, right after a word from today's sponsor. So, uh, (laughs) Time Suck is brought to you today by Hemp's. 
Him's goodnight wrinkle cream is the only thing keeping me from looking a thousand years old lately. Prepping for a new stand-up special, prepping for a separate Sirius XM recording, touring each weekend, keeping three podcasts going each week, in addition to not completely ignoring my awesome family, has left very little sleep time for me this month. Life will get easier next month, and I'll get some rest. Until then, Hymns Goodnight Wrinkle Cream has me looking like I at least sleep. And they have so much more than wrinkle cream. 40% of men by age 40 struggle from not being able to get and maintain an erection. Why do guys, you know, turn to weird solutions or nothing when they can turn instead to medicine and science? Don't do that, right? Don't turn to the weird stuff. Get the good stuff and get a good deal on it. The holiday season is upon us. Hims is erecting the biggest Black Friday deal of them all. You can try a free online visit to get started with Hims. Hims connects you with real licensed doctors, FDA approved pharmaceutical products to treat erectile dysfunction. They offer well-known generic equivalents, to name brand prescriptions, answer all your questions in a confidential chat with a doctor. You can try Hims today by starting out with a free online visit. Go to forhims.com slash timesuckED. That's F-O-R-H-I-M-S dot com slash timesuckED. Prescription products are subject to doctor approval and require an online consultation with a physician who will determine if a prescription is appropriate. See website for full details and safety information. This should cost hundreds if you went in person to the doctor's office or pharmacy. Remember, that's forhims.com slash timesuckED. Link in the episode description. Anton LaVey, devil timeline right now. Strap on those boots, soldier. We're marching down a time-suck timeline. So let's get to it. A lot of this info comes from The Secret Life of the Satanists, the authorized biography of Anton LaVey by Blanche Barton, pointing this out because while this book seemed to provide some of the best details about Anton's life, it was also written by a LaVey-styled Satanist and the mother of one of his children. So let's take it all with a... Very evil, possibly haunted, most likely hyperbolic grain of salt. April 11th, 1930, Anton LaVey, born with the much less evil-sounding name of Howard Stanton LaVey. Good call on switching Howard to Anton, right? I am Anton, high priest of the fallen angel of Lucifer. Much better than, I am Beelzebub's chosen paver of the way for the return of the Antichrist. It is I, Howard. Now, I think Anton sounds a little more evil. Uh, Born in Chicago, Anton's parents relocated to the San Francisco Bay Area soon after his birth. He was called Tony in his younger years, which is even less evil, you know, sounding than Howard. Where is the dark prince's warlock? Where is Satan's wizard? Where is Tony? Hey, no, but seriously, has anyone seen Tony? I haven't seen him in hours. Uh, Gertrude LeVay and her husband Michael is a successful liquor distributor. Kind of evil. The devil's drink. Raised Tony as they would any other bright, even-tempered boy. Attempting to instill useful middle-class values without pressing any particular, you know, religious beliefs upon him. Anton was a musically inclined kid. According to family legend in 1935, at the age of five, Anton, while shopping with his parents, he just started playing a harp at a music store, like a savant. And his parents started throwing more instruments at him. As a kid, he would later tell people that he could play brass, woodwind, strings, percussion, and instruments with piano keys. Sound a little bit less evil right now. More like a, more like a talented dork. Tony would later claim he began to be interested in the occult in 1937 at only the age of seven, being introduced to dark magic by his maternal grandmother, a Transylvanian gypsy. But this is not true because she was not a gypsy or from Transylvania. She was Ukrainian. Not, but, you know, he's like building a myth. Not raised in a super Christian household, Tony did uh, go to church as a young boy, but claims to have lost interest in Christianity entirely in 1939 at the age of nine. 
San Francisco was hosting a World's Fair in 1939 and 1940 to celebrate, amongst other technological marvels, the Golden Gate Bridge. It was called the Golden Gate International Exposition. And there was a very adult, risque for the time show called Sally Rand's Nude Ranch in the Gateway Fun Zone portion of the expo. And young Anton snuck in and watched topless cowgirls spin lariats and pitch horseshoes for at least 20 minutes before anyone found him and kicked him out. He saw the devil's nipples, Satan's hatatas, swinging around free from God's oppressive bras. That's when he became evil. Uh, He did see boobs. And he also saw his normally proper and prudish Sunday school teacher's boobs. I bet those were some hot boobs. LeVay claimed this was his moment of disillusionment with Christianity. Later lead him towards a Satanism, you know, a path of Satanism. He saw her as a hypocrite, and soon he saw many other Christians the same way. By the age of 10 in 1940, Anton ignored his first legal name of Howard entirely, wanting to be called Anton instead of Tony, both derived from his middle name of Stanton. Never occurred to me as a kid, you know, I can mess around with my name. My wife, Lindsay, did that, just changed the spelling of her name when she was like in third grade. Ah, I never thought of something like that or, you know, add names. What if I, what if I would have altered my middle name of Brent to something like Breezy? Move Dan to the middle. You know, but go with Danny. Breezy Danny Cummins. I could have been a mean soprano sax player with the name of Breezy Danny. Breezy DC, maybe just Breezy. You know, I would have crushed the fuck out of some smooth jazz. Would have owned the contemporary instrumentals charts. Around the age of 10 or 11, Anton, you know, he read anything dark he'd get his hands on. Stuff like Bram Stoker's Dracula, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, the most popular expression of the dark side of its time, this magazine called Weird Tales. I was reading Stephen King and Dean Koontz when I was that age. Interesting. Weird to think that I was reading darker shit than the future founder of the Church of Satan. Also around that time, Anton got into the practice of hypnotism, or maybe not. He later claimed to have devoured Dr. William Wesley Cook's practical lessons in hypnotism, and he said he started to apply its methods with great success, but I don't buy it. No one else has corroborated in this 11-year-old boy hypnotizing fools left and right, you know, in San Francisco in 1941. Seems much more likely that LeVay you know, again, is just adding some early occult roots to make it appear as he was destined to become the Dark Prince. You know, as a young child, he knew his, his destiny was Satan. Uh, LeVay recalled having the following thoughts as a child. I looked through all the, the grimoires, manuals of magic used by, you know, supposed sorcerers and witches, and all I saw was junk. Casting a circle to protect yourself. When I started devising my own rituals out of frustration with all I'd seen, I shaped a glowing pentacle to attract these forces. <laughs> Okay. Then I found William Mortensen, the boundary-pushing photographer who wrote The Command to Look, and I realized this is magic. This is what I've been looking for, but it can't be. This is just a little book on photographic techniques. I went through squabblings within myself, but finally I realized this was real magic. I relied more on fiction for magical truth. Lovecraft, Hutchins, uh, Kanaki, Longhounds, uh, Long's Hounds of Tindalos. That's where I found food for thought that I couldn't find in the so-called dangerous dark books of magic. Hadn't anyone called forth the demons before as their friends? I thought surely they had. It makes one believe that people probably were doing it on a carefully guarded underground level, and maybe they didn't let it out because they were getting results. Okay, so early on, he doesn't believe in the stories of organized religion, but he is open to the possibility of like real magic existing somewhere out there in the world. He's open to to thinking there's like, you know, cool sorcerers and witches out there and all these powers you can harness, which, you know, that's cool. That's fun to think about as a kid. Uh, when I was a kid, I thought for a while that if I just focused hard enough, I could actually shoot, you know, uh, like fire from my hands, you know, that I could do some kind of magic superhero shit. Like I really thought for whatever reason, I might actually be able to do that. Probably based on some random movie that I secretly watched on HBO or, you know, Showtime or Skinamax or something. I'd stand in my grandparents' yard when I thought no one was watching. I was like nine or 10. 
and I would actively try to shoot fireballs out of my hand. Right? I would just, I would just picture it. Like, oh, I just, if, I, if I can focus hard enough, I can just pull off these fireballs. And then, I, and then I would daydream about how you know the cute girls in school, you know how cool they think I was. You know, Kim Dowdy, Holly Tomlinson, Jackie Hardy, Michelle Gazinski. It appears I like Polish girls even back then. You know, they see little Danny Cummins and his true fireball glory. They would love and respect me. But then I grew out of that. Anton did not grow out of these thoughts, like fucking ever, like not ever his whole life. Uh, spending all his time thinking about magic left Anton with a weird kid label. And it wasn't into sports, you know, either. So he must have been some kind of social deviant. Uh, despite not being one of the cool kids, Anton said he never had trouble making friends. And his home was always full of kids expecting him to devise some interesting activities for the day. I do love his imagination, powerful imagination. He, he would organize mock military orders and secret societies, but then get pissed off when the other boys broke character or lost interest. <laughs> I love it. You know, he'd say, uh, they'd come over to my place, enthused as hell about what I was doing, bust up my stuff, and then go home. I get that more than I care for. I didn't want my friends coming over when I was, uh, when I was a kid a lot of the time. You know, like if I was playing with my G.I. Joes out in the dirt, I, I had it fucking set up perfectly. I spent an hour. Get all my little guys in the right spot. Have the whole battle planned out. And then my buddy Kyler Cummins, he'd show up or his brother Chance and they would fucking ruin it. No, Snake Eyes would never do that. He's supposed to fight Storm Shadow. Stalker and Dusty are supposed to fight Crocmaster. Fucking Destro. God damn it. I had this planned out. LeVay had a good relationship with his parents. They encouraged his musical talents. He'd say, they pretty much let me do what I wanted. And he seemed to be a, a pretty good kid. He dabbled in the occult, but didn't let his parents find out, saying, I didn't tell them much about what I was doing because I didn't want them to worry. So, so far, so much less evil than I expected. You know, he hasn't skinned any pets alive. Even told his parents to fuck off, you know. I am the Dark Lord's servant and my earth parents shall have no dominion over me. Hail Satan, mom and dad. No, none of that. A pretty smooth childhood. The only real difficulty Anton faced growing up, according to himself, was being burdened with a huge wean. Not kidding. This is what he claimed. This is what he talked about. Ultimate humble brag. In the biography written by his ex-wife and devoted follower, it is written, as with many young men who find themselves unusually well-endowed, quote, unusually well-endowed, Anton felt self-conscious undressing in front of other boys. Oh, that poor bastard. Oh, Satan! Why did God curse me with this giant donkey dong? What did I do to deserve this massive testament to manhood that leaves other boys to spread vicious rumors about my trouser python that inevitably piques the interest of the most sexually curious and adventurous girls at school? Why must I bear this cross, O Dark Lord? Xanton became aware of his uh, uniqueness. He grew to detest all the other boys he called latent homosexuals and gung-ho types who would constantly stare at his massive dragon tail in the locker room. LeVay eventually convinced the doctor to write him a note. This is what he says. Convinced the doctor to write him a note to excuse him from gym so he could spend his ROTC and gym periods in a special room far from the prying, curious eyes of those naughty other locker room boys. How dare they let their mouths fall agape? How dare they permit their eyes to bulge out of their heads in awe of his powerful phallus? Anton would later claim that his dick was so impressive it even drew unwanted attention from the hot, uh, young school nurse. <laughs> he does describe her as being like young and hot too. According to LeVay, if he complained of an ailment to the nurse, any ailment at all, he was instructed to take off his pants every time, you guys. He said, I don't know if you did it to other boys. I was too embarrassed to ask anybody else. When Anton was taking off his pants, he claimed this nurse would turn around discreetly to preserve his privacy, 
But then LeVay noticed she was always sneaking peeks in her purse mirror. Like she would get out of her little makeup mirror and was just, you know, staring, just gazing at his third leg, his veiny kickstand. While she, you know, pretended to kind of inspect her lipstick. Get the fuck out of here. None of that happened. I mean, I know in theory that could happen. I'm not saying it couldn't happen to somebody and it would, you know, it could be bad. But this feels like some just juvenile fantasy. You know, the hot young nurse being so overcome with lust that she just has to sneak peeks at, you know, young LeVay's horse cock. Remember when Anton talked about how he liked to tell lies? Oh, this has to be one of those times. It would be unbearable to talk to this guy at a bar. Just one insane humble brag after another. Wife left you. That's a shame. Yes, I've had my share of lady problems as well, my friend. My last 10 girlfriends, all of whom I was dating at the same time, and they were, of course, totally cool with it. I had to break up with all of them for the same reason. They were sexually insatiable. All they wanted to do was make me give them multiple orgasms several times a day. A man can only bang so many models and beauty queens, you know, so many times in, in, in one day, no matter how much I gave them. They always wanted more of old Tony's trouser tool, Anton's beaver basher, LeVay's cum gun, Satan's fallopian squeegee. You know, I finally, I finally had to tell them, I'm more than just one big, always rock-hard, giant, perfectly symmetrical cock that can come and then immediately be super hard again, you know? Uh, sometime in his early teens, Anton got into some pretty hypocritical peeping. After complaining about having his own dong stared at while earning some extra change, picking up empty bottles around an outdoor dance pavilion, he says he discovered a hole for two to sleep positioned right underneath the ladies' room. There was a gap between the floor and the front of the commode through which he could get a front row glance at any girl who happened to sit down. And apparently Anton made sure he was front and center whenever he spied an interesting woman walking in to relieve herself. This is his, his words again. Oh my God. I'm so sick of everyone trying to get a sneak peek at my... Hey, hold on. Some little hot redheads heading for the ladies' room. Oh, I bet she trims it up. This is going to be a good show. Now, if I take out my horse cock and start jerking, please do not stare at it. It makes me feel gross and violated. Uh, during LeVay's childhood of avoiding athletics, reading about magic, spying on women while they went to the bathroom, hating being burdened with his gargantuan love leg, he remained interested in music. Allegedly, LeVay went on to become a second oboist with the San Francisco Ballet Orchestra when he was just 15, excuse me, in 1945. There are no records of this, however, and actually plenty of evidence that this is another lie. But he did become a musician, so maybe. The next claim of LeVay's is almost for sure a lie, but it's an interesting one that involves satanic Nazis. So let's take a peek. According to Anton, in the spring of 1945, when one of his uncles was hired as a civilian engineer to rebuild airstrips for the army in Germany, 15-year-old Anton went with him, because that makes sense, you know, just to head to Germany with your uncle, for what I imagine would be an extended period of time for his job while you're supposed to be in high school. Could have maybe happened. Maybe it was a summer thing. I doubt it. Anton claims that during this trip, he saw confiscated top secret Nazi horror films mm -hmm. at a command post in Berlin, as a 15-year-old does with her uncle. A German interpreter explained that the films were more than fictional accounts, but rather they were thinly disguised portrayals of real Nazi occultists. I'm surprised he didn't add that he was uh, you know, only allowed to see these films because the Germans found out about his massive devil dong and they agreed to let him watch top secret footage only if he agreed to star in some kind of underage underground porno where he had to have sex with 10 or 20 of Germany's most beautiful women at the same time. Uh, Anton said the films pointed to a black order of Satan worshipers whose members filled the highest ranks of the Third Reich. And learning of this order fueled Anton's interest in the occult. Now, we, we tried to verify if any of this actually happened. It seems as if young Howard spent the entirety of 1945 in suburban North California. 
And that not only did he not visit Germany as a 15-year-old, he never visited Germany at any point during his life. Also seems as if his uncle was likely locked up in prison at this time in the United States. Uh, but what about these Nazi occultists? Did they exist? Yes. Yeah, he didn't make up that part. A deep dive on this would be more befitting his suck on Nazi occultism or Nazi conspiracy, something in that realm. But it's too interesting not to talk, not to at least talk a little bit about here. Uh, basically, Nazism itself was type of a type of a cult, you know, centered around a belief in Aryan destiny. Aryan, you know, defined by the Nazis as basically just being Germanic and Scandinavian, which ironically, not even the real definition of Aryan. Uh, it's a much, it much broader kind of race of people when the term first was, you know, arrived in, into the lexicon of people on earth. Uh, you know, and there's this belief that the Aryans are going to reign supreme and eventually cleanse the earth of all of the races. And some of the Nazis believe that, that you know, they, they can access hidden occult magical power. And if they could access that, it could aid them on their quest for world domination. And this would lead the Nazis to hunt for legendary magical items like the Ark of the Covenant and the Holy Grail. And it led some to worshiping Satan, at least in some sense. Or, or incorporating some elements of, you know, what some people would consider satanic belief. Uh, Heinrich Himmler, top SS officer, chief of the German police, Third Reich Minister of the Interior, and one of the leading architects of the Holocaust, super into the dark arts. He'd been interested in the occult since he was a kid. And in 1933, he bought a Wiewelsberg, uh castle, a Bavarian Renaissance castle, and he had it remodeled to become the strange SS occult activity and research headquarters. Like, this did happen. Between 1936 and 1941, top Nazi party leaders would meet at this castle. There was people studying weird shit there year-round. Uh, but these leaders would meet, and under Himmler's command, they would take part in satanic rituals, uh, read cultish texts of Germanic tribes. Hitler kept expanding the mythology of this little cult as the war you know, got ready to go on. Uh, Himmler envisioned himself as this kind of modern King Arthur. And 12 of his SS officers were the 12 knights of the round table, like the reincarnated versions. They would gather annually, put on knight's gear, Sit, sit around this round table, try to channel various pagan heroes of German legend. So fucking weird. You know, these Nazis, Allah, peanut butter sandwiches. May we channel the souls of Eagle and Ragnar Lothbrok. May Satan grant his power to the nine runes of the 13 monkeys and the three French hands and the two turtle doves and the partridge and the pear tree. Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Hare Satan. Just fucking whatever, just weird shit. Himmler had the walls decorated with the symbol of the Indo-European black sun symbol, similar to a swastika. The Wiewelsberg Castle, believed to be in the area where the German hero Arminius defeated the Roman army in the year 9 CE, essentially liberating Germany from Roman rule. According to some German legends, one of the castle's rooms also served as a center of worship for the Holy Grail. And since early Germans were not Christians, uh, Himmler rejected Christianity and incorporated satanic occult elements into his cult as part of this rejection. And he understood the importance of psychodrama and knew that building rituals could foster loyalty to a cause he wanted to be the leader of someday. So that is what LeVay is referring to. So he was in Germany, but he is referring to shit that did happen in Germany. Now let's get back to his own mythology. Through his eclectic reading and occult research, Anton decided that three men had been truly successful at applying the devil's tools to the benefit of their lives in recent history. One was a guy we've sucked on before, Suck 47, a Grigory Rasputin the wild-eyed infamous Russian mystic who wasn't very good in the end and keeping the Bolsheviks from overthrowing the czars, he served. And he also got himself murdered. But before that, he had a good run. You know, he tricked a lot of Russian women into sexually serving him. Remember, uh, <laughs> he would use his own penis as a sacrament and get women to give him blowjobs thinking that that's how they were supposed to take the sacrament. So I guess Satan helped him out a little bit there. Another man Anton looked up to was an 18th century Italian magician and occultist who became known in the West as Joseph Balsamo. 
You know, almost all historians have viewed Balsamo as a fraud, con man, imposter uh, after his death. While he lived, at least outside of the last six years of his life, he spent in prison after an inquisition trial for heresy. For heresy. Heresy. There we go. He convinced the royal co- courts of Europe that he had psychic healing, alchemy, and scrying abilities. You know, he could heal you with his mind. He could fucking make gold out of dirt. And he could, you know, see the future, except he couldn't do any of those things. The third guy Anton looked up to as being a master of the dark arts was Sir Basil Zaharoff, a Greek arms dealer and industrialist. LeVay was so influenced by Basil that he opened his book, The Satanic Witch, with an homage to Basil's use of power over women. He even had his grandson named Stanton Zaharoff. Zaharoff was perhaps the most successful arm merchants of all time, supplying weapons for the Boer War, the Russo-Japanese War, the Balkan Wars, World War I. Born in, in poverty, Zaharov grew to influence kings and parliaments, eventually became a knight of the British Empire. Zaharov su- summarized his philosophy as, I made wars so that I could sell arms to both sides. I sold armaments to anyone who would buy them. I was a Russian when in Russia, a Greek in Greece, a Frenchman in Paris. So interesting choice and role model, but very, very satanic in Levet's, you know, as, as we come to define Satanism later, somebody who lived for himself, somebody who did what benefited him and you know, lived by his own rules and didn't care about, you know, morality in the way most of us think of it. Zaharoff used bribes and tricks to beat out rival war merchants. He planted rumors to set friend against friend, used the charms of beautiful women to de- defeat or tempt those he wished. LeVay's respect for Zaharoff grew even stronger when he discovered that even after Zaharoff's death, those who tried to expose his manipulations or criticize him often lost their jobs, suffered ill health, even death. As if Zaharoff was reaching out from his grave to exert his continuing influence on the earthly plane. And that's probably just a bunch of bullshit. You know, Zaharoff, you know, his followers having a hand in, or, you know, people who admired him writing, kind of writing his legend. At Zaharoff's estate in the south of France, he also supposedly had a black draped satanic chapel hidden within its walls. And LeVay wanted to be this guy. You know, these kind of dudes were the true black magicians in LeVay's mind. Satanists he respected, wanted to emulate. Guys who lived selfishly. Guys who would manipulate the beliefs in others, you know, to, to serve their own ends. Uh, the beliefs of others, excuse me, to serve their own ends. And guys he thought actually had figured out how to use some kind of true magical powers. Now back to 1946. And that's an important kind of thing to remember too. Like he really did think he didn't believe in, you know, deities, but he did believe there was true magic you could harness in, on this earth. Uh, 1946, young Anton becomes more and more interested in the lives of magicians and the literature of the occult. He starts studying judo, supposedly, the Duke Moore studio in San Francisco, where he says he earned several belts by the end of 1946, and he was just so good at it. He just started beating other boys' asses so easily with his judo mastery that they started accusing him of cheating. Do you, you got it? All right? He's got a huge dong, and he's a supreme fighter. All very legit. He also dropped out of high school in 1946. Didn't need school anymore. You don't, you don't need a diploma to become a dark wizard. He let his hair grow out, started wearing leather jackets and zoot suits, started hanging out around disreputable pool halls, spending his time with gamblers, pimps, prostitutes, hustlers, and pool sharks. Kept studying occult teachings. How did he make money? Well, I think his parents supported him, uh, to be honest. He claims to have made some dough by saving pervert seats as they gathered around what was known as the Blowhole Theater. This is the most ridiculous story. He says it was just a spot where unsuspecting girls could walk across this, uh, you know, like this grate where a little puff of wind would blow their skirts, quote, over their heads, exposing their legs and underwear or lack of underwear. And he said he literally set up seats in front of this and charged guys a quarter to sit down on, on these seats and just enjoy the show as if there's a never-ending stream of women walking by with easily, you know, uh, blown, uh, blow-uppable skirts. No part of me believes that happens. That's another weird childish fantasy. 
The following year, 1947, he claims to have joined the circus. After talking to a young man in a pool hall who worked for the Clyde Betty Circus, LeVay said he became intrigued with the lifestyle and possibilities of circus life. While there are no employment records out there verifying LeVay became an employee of the circus, I am absolutely open to this being real. He seems like the kind of dude who spent a lot of time in a circus. It's said that in the spring of 1947, he signed on as a Clyde Betty Circus roustabout, basically a laborer, lowest guy in the circus totem pole, and as a cage boy responsible for feeding and watering the big cats. Cage boy. Mm-hmm. Sounds like a terrible job. Sarah, I'll do anything. You got to have some kind of job. You, you, you just got to. Sarah, I, I need the money. Uh, well, we do need a new cage boy. Oh, well, great. I, I'll take it. W- what does the cage boy do? It's pretty simple. He sneaks into the lion and tiger cages and gives them fresh food and water and then sneaks out before they claw him to death. Uh, okay. What happened to the last cage boy? Well, he was clawed to death, of course. According to Anton's biography, he developed an immediate rapport with the lions and tigers. And in no time, 17-year-old LeVay was handling eight Nubian lions and four Bengal tigers in the cage at once. So now he's Tony the Tiger Trainer. And according to his official biography, he was great. And clearly, regarding at least this part of his circus experience, he was full of shit. Because he says he got so good at understanding tigers and lions, he was able to exert dominance and basically mind control over them. And he was able to do shit like set a hamburger down on the ground beside their food and then eat it, you know, like a lion would eat it, mimicking their growling noises and just do that alongside of them as if they wouldn't just fucking slap his face off. I don't know. Maybe someone could do it. I don't believe he did. He, he said he began sleeping in the cages with them, you know, every once in a while. He, you know, he just, he became one with these motherfuckers. You know, he's got a huge dick. He can kick anyone's ass with judo and he can trick lions and tigers into thinking he's a lion or a tiger. And, uh, you know, he learned how to become a satanic leader working in the lion cage. He'd later say, I learned so much in the cage. Even getting knocked down taught me great lessons. That's where you really learn power and magic, even how to play God. Anton was able to put his music skills to use in the circus as well. One night, he uh, asked the circus calliope player if he could try and figure out how to play it. Now, the calliope is that insane circus instrument similar to an organ, consisting of a series of whistles uh, sounded by steam or compressed air, an instrument truly befitting a minion of the devil. I thought Father Yo's music was my least favorite music. And I think and it was. But now I may have a new least favorite type of music. Uh, circus calliope music. I'd forgotten about it. And maybe even worse. This is the kind of shit he would supposedly play. Mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure if hell is real, someone is playing the calliope right now, right now. And imagine that's super loud. Some of these things could be played so loud, you supposedly could hear them one to two miles away. You know, they didn't have like a little handy volume. just fucking blasting out your ear holes. That music, like 20 times louder. So that's, so anyway, what Anton said is he said the circus calliope player refused to let him try it out. So he used his occult mastery to curse him and the curse worked. He cursed the calliope player. Because a few nights later, the guy got sick and couldn't perform. So Anton got to step in, right? Take take that. A la peanut butter sandwiches. A spider, a frog leg, a beetle, a tick. Your fingers won't play because now you're too sick. Harry Krishna, Harry Krishna, hell Satan. I don't know. Some fucking not picture him putting stuff in a little cauldron and stirring it around. Although LeVay wasn't sure he could even play the instrument. He, of course, was immediately awesome at it. If you can be awesome at that shit little loose usage of the word awesome. He was so good, he immediately became the show's regular calliope player. 
He cursed that other motherfucker right out of a job. LeVay said he met a number of interesting characters during his time at the circus. I don't doubt that a bit. One of his favorite characters was Hugo Zacchini, the human cannonball. A former Catholic turned militant atheist, Zacchini, would go on tirades about the corruption of organized religion, and he gets shot through the air out of a cannon, and Anton had found his people. Uh, I picture that guy going on rants about the corruption of religion as he's getting fucking launched out of a cannon, you know? And there's no way that God ever intended this message to have been delivered to the common man through the— No, you have to, you have to light the fuse first. The message shouldn't, you know, need to be delivered through priests. I mean, why outside of wanting to control the masses? Hey, no, hey, the fuse is just for show. You light the fuse, and then when it burns all the way down, you just push the button. Excuse me. Anyway, the church is, is a business, and it sells salvation through ties, and, and then you just— And I just think that man can act as God directly if God in fact is all. You get it. LeVay also met circus performer Rubber Bubber Johnson, an animal tamer, Rubber Bubber Johnson, Jesus, an animal tamer whose real name was Robert Barber Johnson. Okay, I see what he did there. Changed Robert Barber to Rubber Bubber. That's a fun nickname. I think I was awesome. He'd write a number, this guy would write a number of short fantasy stories for the popular magazine Weird Tales. He and LeVay struck up a friendship that would last until many years later, until after the Church of Satan was officially formed. In 1947, when the circus season ended, uh, LeVay claimed he he moved on to carnivals, working numerous jobs. He would often play the calliope, <laughs> which in, uh, included, you know, working some of the sex shows, which they called human anatomy and health shows to keep the police at bay. Jeez. So basically, it's, it's a strip club, and he would play <laughs> the calliope at these strip clubs. God damn, can you imagine what kind of weird clown fucking strip club, just that music? <laughs> now coming to the main stage is cotton candy. Look, but don't touch. Careful around the edge of the stage. Cotton candy gets sticky when she gets wet. <laughs> don't put her in your mouth or she'll rot your teeth out. <laughs> Fuck me. Anton also said he performed in shows with mystics, fortune tellers, gypsy palm readers, hypnotists, magicians. He learned as much as he could in front of all of them. During his time in the carnivals, Anton also met Joe Calgary, a man who started him down the path of magic billet reading, which is describing while blindfolded what is written on a paper concealed inside an envelope. And there are a variety of ways to do this, none of which rely on real magic. Uh, another carny named Johnny Starr taught Anton how to play Swami by sitting behind a table in a turban while a pretty girl collects folded messages from audience members, brings them onto a platform, drops them into a clouded crystal bowl. When the messages fall directly through the bowl, uh, they, they fall down a chute to the eager hands of somebody like LeVay under the stage. And then, you know, Anton would open up the papers, shine a flashlight on them and display them through a magnifying lens for the Swami to see them on stage. You know, the turbid showman would then miraculously recite exactly what the audience members had written to the stupefied delight, you know, of the crowd, the wild applause. Anton got to see now how much people loved being tricked, how badly they wanted to believe in real magic. He learns a lot about showmanship watching all this, how important presentation is. Uh, LeVay learning, uh, learned everything he could when he was with the uh, carnivals and circuses, you know, phrenology, palmistry, hypnosis, astrology, more magic tricks. He'd become a stereotypical carny by this point, flashy sports coat, hand-painted ties, pencil-thin mustache. He had a lot of fun, but his health did suffer tremendously. For two years, he lived on nothing but funnel cakes, caramel apples, elephant ears, kettle corn, fried pickles, cotton candy, root beer, and cream soda. He was a full-blown diabetic, morbidly obese, and had to wear dentures due to tooth rot by the age of 18. No, kidding. All the hell stuff was bullshit, uh, as is this next claim about the time LeVay supposedly spent with previous suck subject 32, Marilyn Monroe. This is something he would talk a lot about the rest of his life. He would brag about his romantic, you know, liaisons with, with Marilyn Monroe. By the late 40s, young LeVay, only in his late teens, 
had already earned a reputation as a flamboyant Bay Area personality and as a reliable musician at burlesque theaters. In 1948, he used some recommendations to get some jobs at some strip clubs in Los Angeles, and he said he performed at clubs like the Mayan and the Burbank, as well as a notorious Culver City spot called Zuckus. Just so happened that a young woman who went by the names Marilyn Marlowe, Noreen Mortensen, and Mona Monroe had recently been canceled by Columbia Studios and started working at Zucca. Maybe. The only reference online to this ever happening comes from Anton's biography. Anton said that when he was 18 and Marilyn was 22, they had a little fling. Uh-huh. I'm just, I'm sure she was unable to resist his donkey wing and Chuck Norris-like martial arts skills and fucking musicianship, right? What woman doesn't want to be wooed by the calliope? I doubt he even met her. He would say that it was Marilyn's unusually white skin tone that attracted Anton to her uh, in the first place. <laughs> he said, she was really the awakening of this fascination I have for the translucent skin quality. I never had much interest in blondes in particular before I met Marilyn. The first time I saw Marilyn on stage, she turned around and had that pale, marshmallowy flesh with little bruises down the backs of her thighs. That erotic feeling went through me that I hadn't really felt since that uh, a party a couple of years earlier. It was the awakening of a lust object, I must admit, more than an actual love object. He said they moved into a cheap hotel on Washington Boulevard and had so much sex. He said, we could make love in places where there was some chance of being discovered. Or not could, we would. We would make love in places. Like in a cemetery, the backseat of a car, an abandoned building. She liked the thrill. Get the fuck out of here. No way that happened. I would bet my life that didn't happen. In 1948, Marilyn was just about to break out as a huge star. She was already, at that time, banging movie studio top execs. The vice president of the William Morris Agency already wanted to marry her. There is no way she was dicking around with some 18-year-old San Francisco carny and calliope player. <laughs> just, you know, just Marilyn. Oh, Anton, can you play that music for me again? Happy birthday, Mr. Carney Guy. Play the calliope to me. No. According to LeVay, Marilyn was fascinated with the stories of life in the carnival. And his, <laughs> this guy's such a lunatic. And his ever-deepening study of the black arts. So hard. I keep bursting out laughing at this nonsense that he says was true. He says uh, they would drive around in her Pontiac. And she just loved endlessly hearing him, you know, talk about occultism, you know, and the practices LeVay was beginning to understand. Shortly after they started messing around, Anton became involved with the daughter of an influential Los Angeles business. Uh-huh. Now he's just fucking around on Marilyn Monroe, you know, because everybody wanted that sweet carny dong. Well, he, he's not an attractive guy, by the way, either. This makes even less sense. He looks like a fucking career carny. He looks like a weird pencil stashed, beady-eyed carny. And while he and Marilyn would occasionally hop on the phone and chat, you know, they'd uh, they for, correspond for another decade or so. They'd, they'd never see each other again. So that's the Marilyn story. And he would keep beating that drum that this story happened. Like he would, like I, I read an article about his daughter, one of his daughters later in life, like after he died, still annoyed that she would like do press for the Church of Satan or, you know, be on some show, you know, talking to the Church of Satan. And her dad would say, but bring up the Marilyn stuff. Just make, make sure to bring up the Marilyn stuff. Uh, 1949. After things didn't work out with Marilyn, even though, you know, because every other woman in L.A. also wanted him so bad, uh, he went back to San Francisco, which, you know, makes sense. Uh, and he continued to work as a strip club musician. By the end of 49, the Korean War was looming. Anton worried he'd likely be drafted if war to break out and, and a draft would be enacted in 1950. So in an attempt to avoid being drafted, despite not graduating high school, he claims to have enrolled in San Francisco City College where he would study criminology. 
There's no record of him uh, doing this. He also claims to have become involved with a number of militant Israeli groups while he was there. Claimed he helped them run guns. He's running guns to the Israelis. Uh-huh. Ah, Jesus. I mean, say, I mean, Satan. Gosh. What's the gosh equivalent for Satan? Ah, Sash or something. I don't know. Oh, Beelzebub. While studying, if he did in fact study, there was no record of him again. Uh, he kept working at burlesque houses. And he met his future first wife, Carol Lancy, daughter of a Wells Fargo bank executive. He was 20 when he met Carol, and she was 14. I know it was a different time, but gross. And of course, he went after a 14-year-old. No one his age with half a brain would have believed all his silly bullshit about dating Marilyn Monroe, being a judo badass, running guns for the Israelis, and having a dick so big he stopped taking PE class because he was tired of the stairs. Young Carol had probably never seen a dick. So he was able to convince her that his was like 18 inches long or something, you know? And then he just strictly forbid her to touch a ruler or ever use a tape measure. Poor, poor woman. She probably had no concept of length for, the, for many years. Probably thought that the average grocery store deli hot dog was like three feet long or something. Uh, since Carol was underage, religious, you know, and cult leaders tend to like him young, don't they? Uh, uh, it was necessary for the couple to get her parents' permission before they could marry. And this wasn't going to happen very easily because her parents, you know, uh, thought that he was a weird creep because he was. So 1951, LeVay gets out of the strip clubs and burlesque joints, uses the education he may have gotten studying criminology to get a job, as, excuse me, as a photographer for the San Francisco Police Department. So, you know, he gets a more respectable job. So Carol's parents will now give their now 15-year-old permission to marry the now 21-year-old LeVay. And this is what he claims. Uh, he claims the San Francisco Police Department, uh, you know, hired him to, to do these photos, like crime scene photos, even though they have no record of him ever working there. Uh... And he claims he won several awards for these photos and even sold some to magazines and that this job would solidify his lack in, of belief in God. He wondered how God could sit and watch over all the bloody carnage that he had to photograph, which would make sense if he did take those photos, which I don't think he did. Now, here's something that did happen. Yay, real details. 1952, Carol and Anton have a daughter, Carla Maritza LeVay. Carla would go on to become a high priestess in the Church of Satan. In the 80s and 90s, she would be a frequent guest on TV shows like The Joan Rivers Show, 2020, 60 Minutes, that kind of stuff, uh, speaking often to the cultural paranoia about the satanic panic of the 80s and 90s. And she currently runs the first satanic church in San Francisco, thought to have a teeny tiny membership. And uh, don't get your hopes up about this place. It's not open to the public. You can't just walk in. I'm sure they got tired of people just gawking around because they're curious. You got to pass some tests. You got to pay some dues. The year after the birth of Carla, Anton said he was assigned the all uh, or all of the repeater 800 calls that would come through various San Francisco police bureaus. Now that was the code number for what they called nut calls, reports of ghosts, glowing shapes, floating across the backyard, weird noises, UFO, you know, mysterious rays, all that, all that kind of stuff. As a self-described avid ghost hunter, Anton said he loved this new job. A typical call would have Anton report to a house to find a freaked out couple, frightened, you know, by unnatural moans coming from like a locked attic or something. And he'd go crawl through the cobwebs, searching under the eaves of the house. He said he would usually discover the source of the unnatural moans, and it would be very natural, like a rusty can whistling in the wind or some half-starved cat, you know, trapped in the attic. Anton noticed that when he would describe the simple cause of these problems, people were disappointed. But he was a showman, like a snake oil salesman. And so he started spicing things up and just telling people, like, I took care, you know, I took care of the entity. Started making them believe that, you know, he did get rid of some spirit. And within a few short years, Anton developed a steady clientele, of uh, people who needed him to, you know, cleanse things and get rid of monsters and whatnot. And I guess people would pay good money to have their houses, you know, uh, cleaned of spirits or to be hypnotized also to help them stop smoking, lose weight, 
muster up the courage to ask for a raise they needed. Now he's trying to dabble in all these kind of little side jobs. Eventually, clients asked Anton's advice on how to make simple charms, cast spells, to make some money. So he quits the police department he probably never worked for in 1955. And then to supplement his new income as an exorcist and hypnotist and, you know, potion maker, all this weird shit. Not a lot of money in ghost hunting and all that stuff at this time. Anton returns to music. Playing the organ at a former speakeasy in House of Ill Repute called Maury's Point. Back, back to strip clubs. That's, that's, where the, that's where the money is. About this time, Anton moves uh, his family to a flat near Sutro Heights, the outer Richmond district of Western San Francisco, overlooking Playland at the beach. And he also gets a leopard at this time. Mm -hmm. One of his friends, a writer named Junius Adams, knowing he loved big cats, somehow smuggles a 10-week-old black leopard from Burma. Gives it to Anton. Uh, It's a good friend. There's no way I'm smuggling a leopard kitten from fucking anywhere to give to anyone. The cat was named Zoltan, and it would playfully terrorize guests of the LeVay house for years. This part seems to actually be real. Anton claims the big cat was just part of the family and would even crawl into the baby's crib to sleep with Carla because that's a good choice for a parent to make. Uh, uh, Anton also says he takes Zoltan for walks on a leash at night around San Francisco, just terrifying people. And now let's get to a, uh, a another whopper of a lie. This is, this is an important part of Anton's mythology, and it's not true. In 1959, Anton gets a house that became very infamous in San Francisco. I'll tell you how he claims he got the house first, and then I'll tell you the truth. This is Anton's version. He says that on an outing to see a house near the exclusive Sea Cliff area, a few blocks from the Golden Gate Bridge, he was immediately intrigued by a weathered slate gray Victorian home across the street. While his real estate agent tried to talk him out of it, since the house already had a sold sign on it, you know, it seemed like a lost cause, but Anton, he had a feeling, he had a powerful feeling about this house. So he goes over to the house. The owner of the home happens to be there. When Anton introduces himself as a historian, uh, he's given a, a tour of the, of the home. She leads him through each of the 13 rooms. That she revealed the house had been used, uh, you know, at various times as a speakeasy, a spiritualist's parlor, and a house of ill repute, supposedly very haunted. You know, she's, the home came complete with secret panels, trap doors, hidden rooms. The history of the home included an o- owner named Mary Ellen Pleasant, known as Mammy Pleasant, a very notorious madam in San Francisco's Barbary Coast days when the neighborhood was a local red light district for the second half of the 19th and 20th century. She tells him that many of the closets in the house contain hidden panels that were allegedly used to rob brothel customers when they were being entertained. Secret passages webbed throughout the entire place. It was possible to move throughout the house without being seen. Also had various devices hidden through the house that stimulated eerie effects during seances. When Anton told the owner that he desired to practice occult magic in this house, she reportedly was overjoyed. And she, she just had a feeling. She knew then she needed to sell it to him. It was his destiny to own it. So he offered a bit more money than whoever had already bought it. She was able to break that contract with the previous purchaser and then sold the home to LeVay. That's his story of the infamous black house of San Francisco. Now, here's the truth. It was his parents' house. Seriously, this guy, this guy can be such a piece of shit when it came to being honest about the details of his life. I mean, there, there's not remembering something correctly. There's exaggerating the truth to make yourself look a little bit better. And then they're just making up a completely different nonsensical story to kind of fuel some mythology, to have people view you in a way you want them to. Mammy Pleasant never fucking worked or lived in this black house. There was no secret passages before Anton built them later. He moved into the house his parents gave him. His parents gave him a house because he couldn't afford one on his own because he's not fucking getting real jobs. He's just being a weird fucking calliope carny player and playing the Oregon strip clubs and talking about ghosts and shit. Oh my God. So he moves into this house, he paints it black, and he starts building all the secret passageways so he can turn it into the satanic church. 
After moving in, according to his wife, Carol, he barely provided uh, for the family, making less than 30 bucks a week playing the organ at strip clubs. Anton would, you know, mostly on like the weekend. Anton would say that in addition to playing at uh, one club called the Lost Weekend, he was also hired to play the largest pipe organ west of Chicago at San Francisco's Civic Auditorium and then became San Francisco's official city organist, uh, you know, playing for cultural events, conventions, and games. No, that's, that didn't happen. Late 1959, the early 60s, not having to worry about a mortgage, only having a weekend gig. Anton has plenty of time to entertain a growing group of friends who share his interest in the occult. And they would come over. They started meeting regularly at the Black House, you know, hoping his stupid fucking Jaguar Zoltan didn't claw him. Talk about stuff like summoning demons, making contact with the devil, how to cure people, you know, with fucking witch potions and what, what kind of spiders you're supposed to put in your cauldron. How, how many legs of newt do you need to protect yourself from a necromancer? I don't know. Who knows? Probably spent a lot of time listening to Anton talk about how big his dick was or what sex with Marilyn Monroe was like. These friends would eventually become known as Anton's magic circle. All kinds of people were part of the magic circle. Members of the magic circle began uh, wearing odd-shaped black and red medallions adorned with the bat wing demon. <laughs> Baphomet, you know, became Baphomet. Formed a, a group called the Order of the Trapezoid, which later evolved into the governing body of the Church of Satan. Those who attended LeVay's soirees came from a wide variety of professions and pursuits. The Baroness Karen de Plezen. She grew up in the Royal Palace of Denmark. Uh, magician Dr. Cecil, uh, Cecil Nixon. Anthropologist Michael Harner. Writer Shauna Alexander. Underground filmmaker Kenneth Anger, artists, attorneys, doctors, writers, young Liberace, <laughs> the musician was supposedly there, law enforcement officers, real estate moguls. Apparently, uh, one regular attendee was a dildo manufacturer. No name is given. I hope that part is not a lie. He's described as a dildo manufacturer. <laughs> I mean, somebody's got to do it. You know, it's a real job. You know, dildos don't make themselves. Someone's got someone's to work on a dildo assembly line. Someone's got to do be a, like a dildo secretary, answer the dildo calls. Someone's got to work in dildo shipping. And someone has to be the dildo president. What a weird job. Uh, what do you do? Uh, I'm the owner and CEO of Clit, Climax Triggering Internal Toys. Huh. What, what, what kind of toys exactly does Clit make? Uh, premium genital stimulation devices. Uh, what? Uh, dildos, ma'am. We, we make dildos. And you're the dildo CEO. I prefer dildo president or the head pecker. <laughs> That's a lot of chunk in the industry. <laughs> Uh, through his new circle of friends, Anton would meet an important influence, Dr. Cecil E. Nixon. Mentioned him. Nixon was an eccentric character, dentist by trade. He was in his 80s by the time Anton met him, and he had similar interests in the occult. This dude dressed like a character from a Victorian novel, complete with wing-tipped collars, high-button shoes, and a gold pince-nez style of glasses perched on his nose. He knew a lot about stage magic, mind reading, ventriloquism, <laughs> hypnotism. I love that ventriloquist is in there. He also was a talented automaton inventor, an auto, or automaton. An automaton being a machine that performs a function according to a predetermined set of coded instructions. We talked about that with the Da Vinci episode. You know, he made those. You know, the mechanical knight and the mechanical line he made for the King of France. Those were automatons. Hopefully I'm saying that right. Anton loved, the, you know, interesting eccentric. I do too, actually. And, you know, and he was soon included in Dr. Nixon's Saturday night soirees with the likes of former suck, suck subject, the amazing, inspiring uh, Harry Houdini would be there or was once there, you know, many years before. Uh, pianist, composer, Ig Ignace Paderewski, fucking Polish name. Ugh. Actress Gertrude Lawrence, you know, that I had once gathered with this guy. LeVay would play background music for dramatic recitations, magic acts, or set the proper mood for the night. The instrument LeVay was playing on was an elaborate pipe organ that Dr. Nixon had built himself in his home but never learned to play. And this Dr. Nixon admired Anton a great deal. And at least according to Anton, 
you know, this, this Dr. Nixon shared magical secrets he had learned over his many decades of life with Anton and only with Anton. Now, is that true? I doubt it. I think it's more myth building. I'm sure he met this guy. I doubt he got hidden secrets from him. 1959, busy year for Anton. He met his next wife. Carol was ancient by 1959. She was 23, gross. And he was sick of her nasty old lady parts. So he met Diane Hegarty at Maury's Point, another club he popped in to play the piano. She's described as a 17-year-old voluptuous beauty with long blonde hair and enchanting green eyes. She worked nights at a theater, days doing office work for an insurance company. She was perfect. She had two jobs. She was way into the occult. She was gullible. And her vagina hadn't turned 18. She had everything now 29-year-old Anton wanted in a woman. Anton and Diane began an affair in the following year, 1960. It led Anton and Carol to get a divorce. Anton kept his parents' house in the divorce. Uh, Diane quickly took Carol's spot as the hostess of the magic circle. Ouch. And apparently the other members didn't seem to mind. Man, if, if I cheated on Lindsay and she found out and divorced me, and then I made the new girl, the new queen to suck, I don't think that would sit too well with you meat sacks. I hope it would not. Anton began to formalize his little get-togethers in the early 60s, holding magical lectures, some sort of, you know, different topic every Friday night at midnight, opening these lectures to the public, started charging people $2.50, you know, to get in. And in no time, the front chamber of the Black House was packed to capacity. You know, people would listen to, listen to Anton and his magic circle. His lectures included the occult, esoteric knowledge on topics like vampirism, um, uh, like lycanthropy. I'll say that word correctly in a little bit. I, I have a pronunciation guide somewhere for that. That one always ugh, stresses me out, which is it's werewolves. You know, he talked about uh, methods of torture, various devices for pain, the methods of self-mutilation established by the Catholic Church. He talked about sex theories, revitalization techniques, gland transplants for monkeys, goats, recipes for aphrodisiacs, ESP, zombies, haunted, all kinds of shit. And honestly, it sounds like a good Friday night. It sounds like a good Friday night midnight show, right? Go get messed up at a bar, you know? Maybe hit a joint, take some shrooms, then go to this weird house where people are wearing robes and shit. There's all kinds of occult imagery all over the walls and listen to LeVay talk about werewolves or something. And he was super into werewolves, by the way. We did a werewolf suck on August 3rd, 2018. And he at least claimed to believe in man's ability to transform into a werewolf. He thought learning the right cult, occult magical spells as dark magic could, could let you become a werewolf. Even though he never pulled that off. Ha, huh, it's weird. He must not have been able to get the spell just quite right. You know, he just couldn't nail down the ingredients correctly. Was, was it one leg of newt or two? And which leg? Was it one of the front ones? Or do those count as newt arms? You know, how much, how much spider is a pinch of spider? What part do you pinch? The abdomen? The head? The legs? Are you supposed to use black widows or Roanoke recluses? There's a page dedicated to lycanthropy. I did have it right. Yes. The supernatural transformation of a person into a wolf on the church of Satan.org. <laughs> and it's so great. It includes actual instructions on how to turn into a wolf person. Not kidding. Before the instructions is a warning. I, my, my throat is a little bit trash from the week. I'm gonna take a quick sip off mic. Like a professional. Okay. <laughs> so here's the instructions on how to turn into a wolf person. Uh, before the instructions is a warning. I love it. Just a, like warning, big letters. Never use lycanthropy while angry unless you are in a safe, uninhabited environment. Doing this could cause a violent reaction which will just make the situation worse. You guys, please, if you're going to become a wolf, please do not become an angry wolf. That's the last thing that you or anyone else need. There are too many angry wolves out there as it is. Number two, only use lycanthropy around people who you trust and fully understand what you are doing. However, 
It is best that you use it alone. This better facilitates uninhibited release. Uh Uh-huh. I think doing it alone also increases the odds dramatically that no one will keep annoyingly telling you stuff like, dude, you're not a fucking wolf. Stop growling. You're just high. You look exactly the same, except you're walking around all fours like a weirdo. Number three, only use lycanthropy in a proper environment, such as your own property, away from prying eyes. This better facilitates the transformation and, you know, makes it easier for you to tell yourself you did pull it off and will help keep police calls about wild animals roaming the neighborhood down to a dull roar. I swear to God, I just read that verbatim. (laughs) That's when they act, and they're not joking. Number four, do not let lycanthropy dominate your life. Obsession is a possibility. So you must, from time to time, examine yourself from the standpoint of an objective, objective observer. Treat lycanthropy as something special and don't overdo it. Jesus. Don't overdo it, you guys. It's because it's super easy to turn into a wolf whenever you want. It's not safe. You know, like, like, like you don't want to be a wolf at the grocery store, okay? It's going to scare other shoppers. And you don't have the hands that you would need to pay for, you know, shit and stuff at the end. So, and don't be a wolf at the gym either. We've had a lot of complaints about that. Sure, it's funny to scare people in like a spin class or something, you know, and watch them kind of pedal faster as if the bike's going to start moving. But don't do that. It's hard to work out. You know, wolves are strong, but not good at bench pressing. And, you know, hamstring curls are literally impossible when you got little wolf legs. Uh, The instructions on how to transform into a wolf are long and tedious and super dumb. So I'm not going to repeat them because they're boring as fuck. I'll summarize. Basically, you're supposed to do it during full moon. You wear, (laughs) and you're supposed to wear a wolf costume. Ideally, you get some wolf fur. And you put that on with nothing else, just, just you and your wolf fur. And you relax and meditate and just focus super hard on being a wolf, right? Actually, what you're supposed to focus on first, you want a wolf to be right behind you. You're just like, you're sitting there wearing your wolf skin, just, you know, focusing on a wolf, just sitting there right behind you. And then you want to focus on that wolf, just kind of magically entering your body. And then presto, I got peanut butter sandwiches. Now you're a wolf. Now you're a wolf, right? You just fucking focus your way into wolfdom. Sometimes LeVay gave Friday night speeches about shit like that. Other nights, his speeches were more properly satanic. You know, he started developing rituals and prayers devoted to hailing the dark Lord, renouncing God. According to LeVay, the purpose of these prayers and rituals were to, were to free the stifled and traumatized from the religion-inspired psychic burdens. Satanic ceremonies employ the inverted cross, black candles instead of white, de- desecration of the host, and the backwards recitation of prayers. So it's less about the uh, worship of an actual evil deity, evil entity, more about freeing one's mind from the guilt and shame some suffer thanks to the teachings of certain denominations of organized religion. Uh, at other times, they talked about stuff like cannibalism. <laughs> they had one seminar, one Friday night seminar on cannibalism and human sacrifices. And it actually had these motherfuckers eating people, like for real. Students that night were invited to partake of a cooked thigh of a young Caucasian woman that had been provided to the Black House by Berkeley phys- by a Berkeley physician who attended Anton's lectures regularly and hopefully was fired immediately if anybody found out he had taken a leg and, you know, and cooked it up at this little party. The meat, if you're curious, was described as tasting somewhere between pork and lamb, with the consistency rather fibrous like pork chops, but sweeter and not quite as tender or salty as lamb. He called it long pick, and I don't doubt he actually did that. Anton also developed witches' workshops that concentrated more on the skills of applied magic, you know, enchantment, love potions, fortune-telling, all that stuff pertinent to witchcraft. I'm sure these workshops had a lot less to do with actually learning how to perform spells and more with getting Anton's peepers on some more young ladies. 1963, Anton and Diane would have their first and only child, Zena Galatia LeVay, now known as just Zena. Zena would grow up to become the Church of Satan's spokesperson in the 80s. 
Then in 1990, she would leave the church, renounce Satanism, start hating her dad, openly at least, become a Buddhist. She now lives in Berlin, Germany. In 2012, she helped found the Sethian Liberation Movement, a religious body that allows people to learn and practice magic without answering to an oppressive sect and helps free ex-cult members from their troubled past. So if you don't want to be in a cult anymore, but you want to keep doing spells, look her up. Sounds totally legit. I'm sure it works. Uh, she would later say that her father around the time of her birth was experimenting with various gimmicks at the Black House. He was just being intentionally weird, hosting burlesque shows with women dressed as witches and vampires, you know, giving his lecture, lectures on zombies and werewolves just to get attention, you know, trying to figure out, you know, what would draw the biggest crowd, get people talking the most. She says he actually didn't do anything particularly satanic until a publicist wrote a story about him being the first priest of Satan. And then when people started really talking about that, you know, it's like the light bulb went on, more people started showing up to the black house. Then he got, you know, heavy into Satanism. She compares her dad's founding of the Church of Satan to L. Ron Hubbard's founding of Scientology. It was just a money grab. With all the cults starting to spring up in California in the 60s, Anton was inspired to start his own religion. She said, you know, her mom, Diane, was mortified when he did this. She, she just liked, you know, talking about spooky stuff and dressing up like somebody in the Adams family. But now I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's go back to 1964. In 64, Anton's antics started to gain some publicity. Monique Benoit, society com columnist for the San Francisco Chronicle, wrote of Anton as a psychic investigator, spending nights investigating haunted houses and cemeteries, now holding strange rituals in his menacing black house. Bay Area curiosity starts getting peaked. Who is this pencil-stashed, beady-eyed master of the dark arts? In 1964, another friend of Anton's associates uh, purchases a 10-week-old Nubian lion for him. His second big cat. Yeah another, yeah, another, sorry, I said that weird. Another friend of Anton's. Yeah, one of his associates purchases his second. He, he, I guess he's gonna look super cool, you know, when he's talking about werewolves and zombies and Satan and stuff if he's wearing a pentagram necklace and sitting in between two big cats. He names this one Tagari. Tagari and Zoltan. Way more intimidating than the names of my little doodles, Penny Pooper and Gigi Bell. If I sat on an altar with Penny Pooper on one side and Gigi Bell on the other, I would not be taken seriously. As a master of the dark arts, Anton's big, big cat experiment wouldn't last long. It's not legal to have a lion or leopard for a pet in most places. And he ended up having to donate the animals to the San Francisco Zoo. Also in 1964, young Carla, now 12, chooses to stay with her dad, Anton, instead of her mother. I'm guessing things were a little more loosey-goosey at Devil Dad's house. Guessing you don't have a hard curfew at the Black House. Probably wasn't too strict when it came to drinking or weed. Probably let her listen to whatever she wanted to listen to. As publicity swelled, more curious people began to show up. Anton, you know, is forming this new religion. There had always been some sort of satanic underground going back before, you know, recorded human history. If you classify, you know, being satanic as anyone worshiping a deity that represents the, the darker side of life. And people here and there, you know, never that many have worshipped the, the Christian or Jewish devil since you know, early in the history of, of those religions. But no one had formalized satanic worship until the mid-60s. Not really. Not until Anton did it. 1966, according to Anton, he had, a, he had a fling with another sex symbol. Actress Jane Mansfield did meet LeVay in 1966 while attending the San Francisco Film Festival. Unclear whether Mansfield had previous contact with him and set up the meeting or if she just wandered into the black house uninvited. Regardless, Mansfield and LeVay did spend some time together during the final year of her young life when she was 33 years old before she died in a brutal car accident in 1967. According to LeVay, before her death, Mansfield and LeVay would go on dates, do photo shoots, you know, have all kinds of sex. LeVay even publicly announced that he had made Mansfield a high priestess in his church. Everyone in Mansfield's camp would say this was a bunch of bullshit. 
They said that Mansfield, you know, was was seen with LeVay a few times and it was a calculated publicity stunt. She was a sex symbol in the 50s. Her star was fading. She needed to be noticed by the growing counterculture movement. She wanted to edge up her image a little bit. And she knew if she showed up at the black house, got a few pics with LeVay all fucking satan out with this weird costume. You can find these pictures. You got these little devil hones. It, look, it looks silly, to be totally honest. He's holding skulls and stuff. And she has this white virginal kind of outfit on like she's going to be his sacrifice. And she was right. It, you know, it, it worked. It got people talking about her. It got her some good publicity. And then when she died in a car accident the next year, people started whispering that it was because she was fucking around with Satanists. Anton himself perpetuated a rumor about cursing her boyfriend to get him out of the picture because he also died in the crash. But again, getting ahead of myself, not ready for 1967. Still have more 1966 to talk about. Anton chose the German Christian holiday of Walpurgis night, 1966. It's a holiday that stretches from, you know, the, 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 well, the evening of the April 30th throughout the evening of May 1st to officially found his new church. And he chose this because it has, you know, pagan associations. This holiday celebrates the life of St. Valperga, an 8th century British missionary who brought Christianity to much of Germany. And then, and then it became associated with witchcraft. Well, let's find out why. Uh, it has to do with old rituals for protecting livestock back when animals were traditionally moved to summer pastures. Bonfires were lit by communities across Europe to scare away predators, and that was spooky. All these fires at night. In 16th century Ireland, hares were killed on May Day in the belief that they were shape-shifting witches bent on sucking cows dry and stealing butter. That was something people were actually fucking worried about. Scotland, pieces of rowan tree were placed above the doors of cow bears to, to keep witches away. In the era of witch trials, the Danish law code of 1521 observed that witches were active at holy times such as Valpurgis Night. What's interesting is that there's no evidence there's, there's ever been any type of pagan or witch-like or satanic activity, activity more associated with that time of year than, you know, any other time of year. And, but it just became a thing. In German folklore, Valpurgis Night became associated with uh, a tradition that witches would gather from across the land for a great Sabbath at the top of, you know, Blocksburg, now Brocken, a summit in the Harz Mountains of central Germany. This great witches' meeting uh, may have been, you know, much depicted in 19th and 20th century art and literature, but if you look closely at witch trial records, there's not much evidence for it being true. Probably never happened. From the hundreds of confessions beat out of likely innocent people by self-righteous inquisitors, confessions brought up by torture, confessions, you know, just given to make the torture stop, tell the torture what you think they want to hear. It's clear that pagan rituals, deemed pagan or satanic, happened at, you know, any time of year. Not Valpurgis Night in particular, and probably didn't happen much at all. These people were just saying what the inquisitors wanted them to say. Then in 1668, the Valpurgis Witches Sabbath, firmly located at Brocken in a weighty tomb about the history and geography of the mountain and the region called the Blocksburg Performance. This book uh, includes an illustration of, you know, orgasm, or I'm sorry, orgy type celebrations taking place on this mountaintop. There's these old pictures of people, you know, hanging around and having sex, these villagers, and there's devils and demons, with big devil wings and horns and shit all around them. Then a century and a half later, German philosopher and poet Johann Wolfgang von Goethe drew upon this old Brackham or this old Brocken book for his famous play, Faust, published in 1808, in which he depicts the legendary 16th century magician uh, Metastopheles traveling to the summit of the Brocken, accompanied by witches and demons. You know, the witches strike up this famous chorus for, you know, literary nerds, you know, witches bound for the Brocken are we, the stubble is yellow and the new grain is green. All our number will gather there and you know who will take the chair. So we race on over hedges and ditches, the he-goats stink, so do the witches. And Foss later references Valpurgis, 
It seems, forsooth, a little strange, when we the Brocken came to range, and this Valpurgis night to see, that we should quit this company. Well, Ghost Faust provided inspiration for subsequent, you know, artists like writers Bram Stoker, you know, they would continue this association between Valpurgis night and Satan and the demons and blah, blah, blah. And Brocken continues to be referenced in pop- popular culture today by heavy metal bands, you know, black metal bands, horror films. And it was referenced in 1966 by Anton LaVey. And I just find this stuff fascinating where, you know, there's, there's, there's these holidays out there like, oh, careful, that's a pagan, that's, that's a satanic holiday. Actually, no. Actually, it was just a fucking rumor that started 600 years ago in the telephone game, got it whipped up and going, and then, you know, scared religious people were like, oh my God, maybe we got to watch out for the witches on that night. And it became a thing when it was never originally an actual thing. That's so fascinating to me. Professional publicist Edward Weber claims he was the one who told Anton to turn his Friday night gatherings into religion. He says he suggested to Anton that he would never make any money by lecturing on Friday nights for donations. It would be better because I guess he started doing that as well. He'd be better to form some sort of church and get a charter from the state of California. I told Anton at the time that the press was going to flip out over this and we would all get a lot of notoriety. Yeah, he was right. Uh, Anton did kick off this religion. Around this time, he'd say, we established a church of Satan, something that would smash all concepts of what a church was supposed to be. This was a temple of indulgence instead of the temples of abstinence that had been built up until then. We didn't want it to be an unforgiving, unwelcoming place, but a place where you could go to have fun. So again, it's not really a religion. It's, it's just more of an anti-religion. Within a year and a half of its creation, the organization would be the center of three separate media sensations that splashed front page headlines about Satan's church around the world. Helped Anton sell a lot of copies of the Satanic Bible a little bit later. The first of these was the marriage of two of Anton's members, February 1st, 1967. John Raymond, a politically radical journalist. Judith Case, a New York socialite, daughter of a prominent attorney. They asked Anton to perform their wedding ceremony, blessing their marriage in Satan's name. And Christians worldwide freaked the fuck out. If we start allowing marriages to be blessed in Satan's name, the Antichrist will be here in any second. I'm here, gosh dang! The world's going to be flooded with demons. That gets him a lot of press. On the day of the ceremony, newspapers from California to Europe had more reporters and photographers at the event, uh, more than any event since the opening of the Golden Gate Bridge. Now, the Black House was packed with reporters witnessing this supreme blasphemy. The Los Angeles Times devoted four columns to the front page of the event, while most of the other paper stories lingered on the naked lady altar LeVay used in the ceremony. That got him some press too. Titties, a woman's naked body. Right, that will rile up social conservatives, you know, almost as much as the hard dick. A naked, a naked body, a naked woman with a woman titties out in full view. What if a child saw those filthy devil titties? Even worse, what if a what if a child saw one of Satan's pussy holes? Oh my flip! They might like it. They might want to touch one of those pussies someday. They might want to suck on those titties, or put their adult penis in one of those adult pussies, or in between those adult titties. My lanta. What if they wanted to someday rub their own pussy up against the other pussy in some kind of sexual scissoring fantasy that I'm 99% sure a dude made up because I doubt that happens often in lesbian sex just because of the, you know, tricky logistics of rubbing one clit up against another clit in a way that would feel good and be rhythmic and it would take a lot of work and you'd probably cramp up and it'd be, you know, awkward position. Hoingy boingy, oofta, oofta, put into holesy wolsey against another holesy wolsey. Two tugboat captains fighting it out on the high seas, oofta. Seriously, 1960s social conservatives were disgusted at the idea of a nude woman altar. Got a lot of people talking about the Satanists. He was adorned with the title of the Black Pope. And the media from around the world, you know, they just started falling all over each other to get an interview. 
Men's magazines print pics of these nude altar girls. Mainstream magazines doing in-depth cover stories and interviews with Anton LaVey, the dark prince of Satanism. And LaVey loved it. He pushed the envelope more and more, blasphemed more to rile up, you know, uh, people more, get more attention. Came up with more rituals that parodied Christianity. Started doing stuff like uh, producing strip shows, like a topless witch's review, you know, in San Francisco. One of the girls he hired to, to perform in these shows was actually Susan Atkins, future member of the Manson family. A couple of years later, Atkins would commit the murders in Sharon Tate's Benedict Canyon home, allegedly licking the blood off of her fingers after the deed. We talked about that way back in Suck 18. Atkins would later say that LeVay was the start of her mental downfall. Anton would later remember Atkins as just another hate street burnout, perhaps a bit more drug befuddled than some. Susan would die in a California prison in 2009 at the age of 61, after being in prison for more than four decades. Uh, the second major offense to the public came when Anton decided it was time to perform the world's first public satanic baptism. Rather than cleanse the child of original sin, as in the Christian baptism imposing unwarranted guilt, we will glorify her natural instincts and intensify her lust for life. Right? This gets people fucking freaked out. Now, who better to be baptized in such a public ceremony than LeVay's own three-year-old daughter, Zena, with her soft blonde hair. She's, a, she's such a cute little kid. Soft blonde hair, engaging smile. She captivated reporters, horrified the public with an image of this little girl in this robe with this pentagram necklace being, you know, dedicated to the devil. May 23rd, 1967. Her mother dressed also in a bright, right, uh, bright red hooded robe. She gets sat on the edge of the altar while photographers from New York to Rome are snapping pictures. And Anton recites an evocation that he would later adapt into his book, The Satanic Rituals. It went like this. And this, is, this would be pretty freaky if you were religious and saw this. He said, in the name of Satan, Lucifer, welcome a new mistress, Zena, creature of ecstatic magic light. Welcome to our company. The path of darkness welcomes thee. Be not afraid. Above you, Satan heaves his bulk into the startled sky and makes a canopy of great black wings. Small sorceress, most natural and true magician, your tiny hands have the power to pull heaven down and from it build monuments to your own sweet indulgence. Your power makes you master of the world of frightened, cowering, and guilt-ridden men. And so, in the name of Satan, we set your feet upon the left-hand path. Xena, we baptize you with earth and air, with brine and burning flame. And so we dedicate your life to love, to passion, to indulgence, and to Satan. And the way of darkness, hail Zena, hail Satan. Well, Christian organized you know, organizations, obviously appalled, but there's nothing they can do about it. It'd be a wee bit hypocritical of them if they tried to step on, you know, you know freedom of religious expression. Uh, funny to me that if you take out the nods of Satan, if you take out some of the language, the underlying message there is actually pretty good. It's basically just carpe diem. Enjoy your time on earth. You know, experience pleasure, experience joy. Don't just exist, fucking live. You know, get the most you can out of your rotations around the sun. Hail Nimrod. Hail Lucifina. Uh, Hail Satan? I don't know. I love that message. Uh, in December of 1967, the third of Anton's great satanic publicity stunts occurs after Anton was approached by Mrs. Edward Olson. Mrs. Olson wanted the high priest to perform a funeral for her recently deceased husband, Naval officer named Edward, who was killed in a traffic accident near San Francisco's Treasure Island Station. Oh, shit. A satanic funeral. Load the Greg. Aim the Greg. Fire the Greg. Hail Satan. Both she and Edward Olson become members of the Church of Satan. And she said of her husband, he believed in this church, and it is in this church that he would have wanted his funeral. The Navy, not stoked about it, legally kind of have to agree with his request. 
There was a chrome-helmeted honor guard in attendance at the ceremony, standing rigidly at attention alongside the black-robed witches and warlocks wearing Baphomet medallions. I found a picture taken at this funeral, and holy shit, it is worth a glance. So surreal. Looks like a screenshot from some old movie. Just dudes in satanic robes standing along naval honor guards. To end the funeral, the Navy fired three volleys with their rifles. A Navy musician played taps after the mourners shouted, Hail Satan! I can only imagine how uncomfortable some of those soldiers were. How was Eddie's funeral, Harold? Oh, it could have been better. Could have done without the Hail Satans. Didn't mind the naked older girls so much, but the Hail Satans really kind of chapped my ass. Really kind of made me uncomfortable. Uh, LeVay's dark star continued to rise in 1968 when Rosemary's Baby, Roman Polanski's film about the child of Satan, was about to be released on June 12, 1968. Publicists took advantage of the high priest's high visibility by passing out small black buttons that read, Pray for Anton LeVay. LeVay said that Rosemary's Baby did for the Church of Satan what the birth of a nation did for the Ku Klux Klan, complete with recruiting posters in the lobby. Uh, touchy movie to reference. But okay, all right, fine. Rosemary's baby helped boost satanic enrollment like the birth of a nation boosted clan enrollment. His comparison, not mine. 1969, Anton financially capitalizes on his new notoriety by releasing the satanic Bible. There were rumors in 1969 that membership in the Church of Satan had grown to well over 10,000. Anton himself claimed the church had hundreds of thousands of members. Uh, not true. According to insiders, membership in the Church of Satan, like actual membership, has never exceeded 300 people. Despite not having impressive membership numbers, the Satanic Bible is sold well enough to have never gone out of print. The paperback version has over a thousand ratings on Amazon, and we're going to look at a few of those ratings in today's Idiots of the Internet. Not going to do that segment quite yet. First, let's see what Anton said about his most infamous book. Let's go over some of what's inside. Regarding what he wrote in the book, Anton said, I never set out to be a writer. I wrote the Satanic Bible out of disgust. I'd looked for years for a no-bullshit how-to book on black magic without the protection of the pentagram and evoking the names of Jesus. I couldn't find anything like what I had in mind, so I wrote one. This religion of Satanism Anton wrote about, again, really anti-religion, with some kind of witchcraft thrown in. The book doesn't talk much about gods or Satan, more about people worshiping themselves. Uh, the current high priest of the church, Peter Gilmore, current high priest of, uh, uh, yeah, church, uh, the Church of Satan, there's a couple variations, elaborated on Satanism's atheist roots in 2007, saying, Satanism begins with atheism. We begin with the universe and say it's indifferent. There's no God. There's no devil. No one cares. So you then have to make a decision that places yourself at the center of your own subjective universe because, of course, we can't have any kind of object contact with anything that exists. So by making yourself the primary value in your life, you are your own God. By being your own God, you are comfortable about making your own decisions and about what to value. What's positive to you is good. What harms you is evil. You extend it to things that you cherish and the people that you cherish. So it's actually very easy to see that it's a self-centered philosophy. But it also requires responsibility, since you are taking on for yourself the complete onus for your personal success or failure. You can't be praying to a god or blaming a devil, or anyone else for that matter, for what happens to you. It's on your own head. Shit. <sighs> Feel a little bit Satan-y again. Taking responsibility for your own actions. Your success or failure depends mostly on you, so stop blaming other people. That sounds like some shit that I might say. Okay, now let's really look at the main teachings of the Church of Satan. Let's begin with the nine satanic statements coming from the opening chapters of the Satanic Bible. Number one, the first statement is that Satan represents indulgence instead of abstinence. Nothing is to be gained by denying oneself pleasure. Religious calls for abstinence most often come from faiths that view the physical world and its pleasures as spiritually dangerous. 
Satanism is world-affirming, not world-denying. However, the encouragement of indulgence does not equate to mindless submersion into pleasures. Sometimes restraint leads to heightened enjoyment later, in which case patience and discipline are encouraged. Finally, indulgence requires one to always be in control. If satisfying the desire becomes a compulsion, then control has been surrendered to the object of desire, and this is never encouraged. Okay, so, so what I just got out of that is it's okay to do a little bit of blow from time to time. I mean, don't snort your mortgage payment away, but you can do a little, little bit. Okay, I'm listening, devil. What else you got? Second statement is that Satan represents vital existence instead of spiritual pipe dreams. Reality and existence are sacred. And the truth of that existence is to be honored and sought at all times and never sacrificed for a comforting lie or an unverified claim one cannot bother to investigate. This one is tough for me, come from LeVay. The king of bullshit, telling me to watch out for bullshitters and bullshittery. I mean, I agree, but you know, maybe you should have followed your own statement a little closer, Anton. The third of these statements is Satan represents undefiled wisdom instead of hypocritical self-deceit. True knowledge takes work and strength. It is something one finds rather than something handed to you. Doubt everything and avoid dogma. Truth describes how the world truly is, how we would like it to be. Be wary of shallow emotional wants. All too often, they are satisfied only at the expense of truth. Holy shit. Did he just describe the core ethos of time suck? Is Nimrod Satan? Is Satan awesome? What the fuck's happening? Uh, The fourth statement is that Satan represents kindness to those who deserve it instead of love wasted on ingrates. There is nothing in Satanism that encourages wanton cruelty or unkindness. There is nothing productive in that. But it is also unproductive to waste your energy on people who will not appreciate or reciprocate your kindness. Treat others as they treat you will form meaningful and productive bonds, but let parasites know that you will not waste your time with them. Holy shit, I love that one a ton. Very level-headed, right? Love those who don't damage you. For parasites and assholes, fuck off. Hail Nimrod! The fifth satanic statement is that Satan represents vengeance instead of turning the other cheech, <laughs> cheech, uh, cheek. Leaving wrongs unpunished merely encourages miscreants to continue preying on others. Those who do not stand up for themselves end up being trampled. This is not, however, an encouragement for misbehavior. Becoming a bully in the name of vengeance vengeance is not only dishonest, but it also invites others to bring retribution on you. The same goes for performing illegal actions of retribution. Break the law, and you yourself become the miscreant that the law should come down on swiftly and harshly. Fucking love it. Righteous vengeance. I'm starting to feel like Satan gets me. The sixth statement is that Satan represents responsibility to the responsible instead of concern for psychic vampires. Satan advocates extending responsibility to the responsible rather than acquiescing to psychic vampires. True leaders are identified by their actions and accomplishments, not their titles. Real power and responsibility should be given to those who can wield it, not to those who simply demand it. All right. Still, you know, pretty solid pragmatic advice. The seventh statement says that Satan represents man as just another animal, sometimes better, more often worse than those who walk on all fours, who because of his divine spiritual and intellectual development has become the most vicious animal of all. Elevating the human species to a position somehow innately superior to other animals is blatant self-deceit. Humanity is driven by the same natural urges that other animals experience. While our intellect has allowed us to accomplish truly great things, which should be appreciated, It can also be credited with incredible and wanton acts of cruelty throughout history. Okay. I mean, I also like that one. I mean, I thought for a long, long time that humans, while we can be so beautiful and so inspiring and so godly even, uh, also overall the worst thing by far that's ever happened to earth. I mean, bears and lions aren't constantly thinking up new ways to kill each other. Deer aren't dumping toxins into rivers and streams and killing fish and poisoning water 
so they can make some extra money to buy an infinity pool or, you know, option out a Range Rover. That being said, I do prefer humans to any other species. Doodles being a very close second. The second to last statement for the Satanist, the eight, says that Satan represents all of the so-called sins and they all lead to physical, mental, or mental gratification. Satan champions the so-called sins. In general, the concept of sin is something that breaks a moral or religious law and Satanism is strictly against following of such dogma. When a Satanist avoids an action, it is because of concrete reasoning, not simply because dogma dictates or because someone has judged it bad. In addition, when a Satanist realizes that he or she has committed an actual wrong, the correct response is to accept it, learn from it, and avoid doing it again. Not to mentally beat yourself up for it or beg for forgiveness. All right, Satan. All right, not opposed to that one either. The final of the nine satanic statements is that Satan has been the best friend the church has ever had, as he has kept it in business all these years. This last statement is largely a declaration against dogmatic and fear-based religion. If there were no temptations, if we did not have the natures that we do, if there was nothing to fear, then few people would submit themselves to the rules and abuses that have developed in other religions, specifically Christianity, over the centuries. Now, you know what? That's inflammatory, but it may be my favorite one. I mean, if you want to believe in God, do it because you love God, not because you're afraid of the devil. Also worship a loving, forgiving God, not an angry God willing to set your soul on fire forever because you don't worship him specifically. That's my opinion. So those are the nine founding satanic statements. But, be, but of course, that's not all. There's also the 11 satanic rules of earth. They're much shorter. The first rule is do not give opinions or advice unless you're asked. All right. Not too evil. Satan's starting to seem like a grumpy grandpa. That one. Next rule is do not tell your troubles to others unless you are sure they want to hear them. Again, kind of grumpy grandpa advice. Shut up already. I'm tired of listening to you whine. I didn't ask for your advice. The third rule is when in another's lair, show him respect or else do not go there. Yeah, if you're going to be an asshole, get the fuck out of my lair. Fourth rule says that if a guest in your lair annoys you, treat him cruelly and without mercy. Mm-hmm, good. Uh, you know, you don't like me calling you an asshole? Well, then fucking get out of my lair, Gare. Get, get out of the lair, Gare. The fifth rule, uh, the fifth rule is a good one. Do not make sexual advances unless you are given the mating signal. All right? Don't be a rapey creep. Rule six, do not take that which does not belong to you unless it is a burden. And the other person, uh, you know, cries out to be relieved. So don't steal unless, you know, they, they, fucking, they want you to take it. <laughs> rule, rule seven, Satanism uh, states that acknowledge the power of your magic if you have employed it successfully to obtain your desires. If you deny the power of magic after you've called upon it with success, you will lose all you have obtained. So that's, took a little break from the decent advice there to, just to, to kind of witch it up a little bit. You know, make sure he still sounds occulty. The eighth rule is do not complain about anything to which you need not subject yourself. Uh, I can't do that one. If I, if I follow that rule, I'm not going to have a fucking career anymore as a stand-up comic. Now I got to complain. Sorry, Anton. Rule number nine, do not harm little children. Big fan of that one. Wish more people followed it. Tenth rule, do not kill non-human animals unless you are attacked for your food. F fair, all right. Don't hurt animals unless they're attacking you or are tasty. Final rule, also nice, says that, uh, you know, some people might not interpret it as nice. I think it's nice. It says when walking in open territory, Bother no one. If someone bothers you, ask him to stop. If he does not stop, destroy him. Don't fuck with me, motherfucker, or I'm gonna have to kill you. So those are Big Dick Tony's basic rules. There's also the nine satanic sins Anton wrote that give us a more complete understanding of, uh, you know, Levian satism. All these sins weren't written down, you know, around 1987, the, or weren't written down until 1987. They were taught in the early days of the movement. Again, just like more common sense stuff. Uh, but some of it, I just like the way it's worded. The first is stupidity. 
Stupidity is the first and cardinal sin of Satanism. LeVay writes, it's too bad that stupidity isn't painful. Ignorance is one thing, but our society thrives increasingly on stupidity. It depends on people going along with whatever they are told. The media promotes a cultivated stupidity as a posture that is not only acceptable, but laudable. Satanists must learn to see through the tricks and cannot afford to be stupid. Uh, amen. The second major sin is pretentiousness. Anton describes this sin when he says, empty posturing can be most irritating and isn't applying the cardinal rules of lesser magic. On equal footing with stupidity for what keeps the money in circulation these days. Everyone's made to feel like a big shot, whether they can come up with the goods or not. Yeah, don't fake it till you make it. And when you do make it, don't act like you're the shit. I read this sin as like, you know, just be fucking cool, man. Uh, solipsism is the third major sin. Solipsism. Uh, solip- uh, solip- oh, Jesus. Solipsism. There we go. It's a tricky word for me. It's the viewer theory that the self is, you know, all that can be known to exist. LeVay says, uh, solipsism, or so- God damn it. There's an extra S in there that I hate. <laughs> Sol-ip-sism. Solipsism can be very dangerous for Satanists. Protect, projecting your reactions, responses, and sensibilities onto someone who's probably far less attuned than you are. It is the mistake of expecting people to give you the same consideration, courtesy, and respect that you naturally give them. They won't. Instead, Satanists must strive to apply the dictum of do unto others as they do unto you. It works for most of us, requires constant vigilance, lest you slip into a comfortable illusion of everyone being like you. As has been said, certain utopias would be ideal in a nation of philosophers, but unfortunately, we're far from that point. And I, so I like this one. You know, and I can work on this one. You know, I get mad mostly when I think someone is not acting like they're supposed to, but I'm defining that for what I think, you know, it's, it's very subjective. You know, I can't expect someone else to, to act like I think they're supposed to act if they were raised very differently than I was. You know, you get it. The fourth sin is self-deceit. Also mentions one of the nine satanic statements, but Anton decided to include it again. Uh, number five satanic sins is herd conformity. Anton says that's obvious from a satanic stance. It's all right to conform to a person's wishes if it ultimately benefits you. But only fools follow along with the herd, letting an impersonal entity dictate to you. All right, I don't mind that one either. Sixth uh, sin of Satanism is a lack of perspective. Anton describes as something you can, you know, that can lead to a lot of pain for a Satanist. He says, you must never lose sight of who you are and what a threat you can be by your very existence. We are making history right now every day. That is an important key to both lesser and greater magic. So this, this one, you know, just comes as more of like a, Acting like a Satanist is superior because, you know, you know, you know, magic, you know, you know more magic than the average person, even though they never actually demonstrated, you know, doing anything magical. This is like a be a Satanist, you know, buy my books and you'll learn the inside secrets of how to be better than everyone else. Uh, number seven, forgetfulness of past orthodoxies. LeVay writes, be aware that this is one of the keys to brainwashing people into accepting something new and different, when in reality it's something that was once widely accepted, but is now presented in a new package. Kind of ironic that he puts this one in here considering that anti or Anton likely plagiarized a lot of these satanic thoughts from the philosophic teachings of other people, you know, previous to him, none of whom were Satanists. You know, many claim that LeVay plagiarized the majority of the satanic Bible from this obscure 1896 book called Might is Right, written by someone under the pseudonym of Ragnar Redbird, or Redbeard, excuse me. Some think Jack London wrote this book. And it was a piercing Darwinistic critique of Christianity. It rejected conventional notions of human rights, advocated a type of psychological hedonism, do what's best for you, fuck everyone else. Now, the subtitle of this book is Survival of the Fittest. And it's very similar to the Satanic Bible. Another third of the Satanic Bible consists of John Dee's Enochian Keys, 
taken directly, but again, without attribution from Aleister Crowley's Equinox. And then the nine satanic statements actually could be taken directly from Ayn Rand's Atlas Shrugged. He forgot his rule of crediting the original there. Uh, Number eight of the sins is counterproductive pride. He says, the first word is important. Pride is great. Up to the point you begin to throw out the baby with the bathwater. The rule of Satanism is if it works for you, great. When it stops working for you, when you paint yourself into a corner and the only way out is to say, I'm sorry, then say you're sorry. Hmm. Like that one too. Final sin, number nine, lack of aesthetics. He writes, the, this is the physical application of the balance factor. Aesthetics, you know, and this is just a bunch of fucking weird drivel about like magic again. And kind of like a little bit message of don't be a slob. You know, don't, don't wear your pajamas out to dinner, comb your hair, brush your teeth, have some respect for yourself. The rest of us have to look at you. And LeVay stood behind all these statements until his death. He would actually double down in the 90s when he said, if people simply had to face up to their own actions, their own evolution, and make adjustments for their own progress, the population will be cut in half in one generation. Instead, we've devised laws and lawsuits to protect people from themselves. If these feeble, modern, inbred creatures had to live by their wits and take care of themselves, they'd be too scared to go out of their houses. They'd be dead. They wouldn't be able to move fast enough or think fast enough, and they'd be eliminated. Holy shit, am I the devil? I don't know, right? This this kind of resonates with me. Of course, there are exceptions. You know, some people have like brain damage, mental illness, cognitive disabilities. Then there are other people, you know, who just choose not to try, not to put forth their best effort. They choose not to adapt, evolve, sacrifice present happiness for future reward. Choose the easy road, the lazy road. Choose to identify as a victim, even though that their own, they're their own primary victimizer. You know, why, why should we kind of support these people? Which is what he goes on to talk about more in a lengthy description of that rule. You know, basically like, why, why do we, the rest of society that are, that are working hard and, and trying to evolve, why do we have to, you know, constantly try and help lift up people who don't fucking care? who don't try. You know, why waste energy on those who choose to rot? Why not let them rot? Is that not what they deserve? Are they not the architects of their own demise? And you know, what if you took the energy you spent helping them and instead spend it on helping people to actually help themselves? You know, gosh dang, Bill's bub. Are we, are we buds? Oh my heck. I like the way you think sometimes. So that's the gist of the satanic Bible. Very little to do with the Christian notion of the devil. In the Christian sense, the only thing really satanic about it is that it uh, rejects Christianity as a valid, you know, theological belief system which of course, if you're Christian, is is very satanic. But really, no more satanic than any other religion, if you think about it in a way. I mean, if you're Christian, you could view every other religion as one that is teaching you to not worship Christ. And in a sense, that would kind of make it satanic, right? I mean, I guess, maybe. On a philosophic, non-theological level, the satanic Bible just actually offers a lot of good advice mixed in with a lot of weird kind of, you know, ritually stuff. At least that's how I see it. Let's see how some other people see it on today's Idiots of the Internet. So here are some Amazon reviews of the mass market paperback edition of Anton LaVey's Satanic Bible. Has 1,031 ratings at the time of me putting these notes together. Overall, four and a half out of five star rating. 73% of the raters give it five stars. User Kellen Watkins is not one of those five star raters. He gave the book one star this past August 24th with the title of Really Disappointed. Writing, I ordered this book out of curiosity of the views of Satan worshipers for funsies. Disappointed that the Church of Satan doesn't even worship Satan. I love it. Not really an idiotic comment, just funny to me. Like, dude, I, I get being bummed, but that's not the author's fault. That's your fault. You know, you could have looked at Wikipedia and in two minutes gotten a feel for what the book was before you ordered it. Maybe don't one star something just because you don't bother to look into what it actually fucking is. And I just love that he wrote, disappointed that the church of Satan doesn't even worship Satan. 
Uh, user Woke Quagmire gave another one-star review with the title, Be wary, whoever packs your book might be offended and rip it. And then for his review, he wrote, Book was torn at the lower right-hand side. Looks like it was done on purpose by the looks of it. <laughs> and he attaches a picture of the tiniest little tear. Dude, what are you talking about? You really think some Amazon employee sees this book and then he's, oh, he wants to read about Satan, huh? Oh, this will teach him. And then just fucking make the teeny tiniest little tear in the corner. Ha <laughs> I'll teach him to talk about Satan. And also, why are you one star in the book? It's not the book's fault that someone working there might have ripped it, you jackass. Send a fucking email like a grown-up to customer service. Like someone who understands life. What you did was like giving a movie a bad review because you didn't like how much butter the kid working the fucking concession stand put on your popcorn. An anonymous Amazon customer once started for the same reason, title, damaged book. And then he wrote, great book. Bought it as a gift for a friend. However, the copy I received appeared to be used. The paperback cover and, and the back were bent and damaged. Another picture attached. Again, tiniest little bend, not used. Teeny, tiny little bend. It's a paperback book, you fucking idiot. <laughs> and I love how you call it great, but then give it one star. Email or call customer service. How do people not know that? Someone with an extremely offensive username, Dog Enbomb, left another one-star review titled, When Do I Get the Satan? And then wrote, Satan didn't come out of the book. Waste of money. But fun to leave out to scare the Mormons. <laughs> but dude, if you're leaving it out to scare people and you enjoy that, can't, can't you at least give it two stars? A lot of harsh, a lot of harsh reviews here. Another anonymous customer gave it one-star review titled, Disappointed Really. I didn't know what I expected. And the review is, Disappointed Really. I didn't know what I expected. And then, I read a lot on different religions and practices, but it's dumb. I'm not going to lie. This is a dumb book. Arrived fast though, exclamation points. That part cracked me up. Arrived fast though. I hated it, but I did love how fast it showed up. Well, then give it two stars at least, weirdo. Saber Bob gives it a very good one-star review. I'm not against one-star reviews if they're done with thought. Uh, this is one of the most well-written one-star reviews I've ever read. He titles it, Waste Not Your Money or Time, and then writes... Anne Rand and Aleister Crowley had a love child, and this screed was the result, with more than a little bit of Nietzsche and the Marquis de Sade in the mix as well. Giving this book and modern Satanism much attention gives them far more power than they deserve. Tony LeVay was a carny, never a lion tamer, but he picked up enough to handle one for a while. And the carny attitude shows through just about every word he spoke and wrote. He also BSed about his being a crime scene photographer, so the story of his cannibal dinner dining upon some poor auto accident style was almost certainly just a pork roast supper. He inflated the story of Jane Mansfield's death via his supposed curse. She was partially scalped, but not decapitated. Her death was from impact neck break. As a carny, LeVay could play the role of Black Pope to the hilt, but the contempt he felt for anyone who swallowed his rehashed uh, atheistic occultism just oozes through this pretentious book. All right. I like you, Bob. I'm scared of what your review of Time Stick would be, but you honestly, uh, you know, you, you seem like you put a lot of thought into that. I like how you justified your one star. Well done. Now for a silly one that just made me smile. Another anonymous Amazon customer gave the book five stars, writing the title of Ordered Itself. And then they wrote, oddly enough, I don't remember ordering this item. I woke up to an email saying it was on its way after it had sat in my cart for several weeks. The thought that the satanic Bible may have ordered itself made the experience a thousand percent better. <laughs> yeah, Satan just picked it out for him. Satan just put shit in his cart. What else did he put in your cart? It's got to be more stuff than just that book. Okay, one more. Caden Fox is a Satanist. 
and someone I hope I never meet or communicate with in any way whatsoever. He gives the book two stars with the title of, yeah, okay, whatever. And then he writes, let me first start out by saying for the record that I am a Satanist. I became interested in Satanism through the Satanic Bible. And at the time I read it, the book really impressed me. However, the reason I give it two stars is that half the book is common sense that everyone should know already. The other half is just made up languages disguised as powerful rituals. Made up languages like Latin and Hebrew and French, you fucking dummy. I've never seen anybody do that. <laughs> huh, this isn't the language that I know. I guess it's just made up then. And how dare you two-star a book that got you into the religion that apparently you like. This, this book completely changed my life. Two out of five stars. You're worse than the three-star guy. Great book. Wouldn't change a thing. Three out of five stars. That's enough for just little idiots of the internet. Time. Whoops. Idiots of the internet. Now, I know you guys tease me for these buttons, but you know, you know, I will, I'm not complaining at all, but here's what's always going to be tough about this show, not having another person in the room. I've done so much radio over the years. I'm so jealous of them in that sense where it's like, yeah, they're pushing the button because they don't have to be fucking talking at the same time. They get to listen to somebody else talk. Oh, half the time when I'm doing jokes on like radio, the guy's not looking at me. He's looking at the control board, fucking queuing shit up. I'm not a multitasker. Okay. Let's jump back in the timeline. Uh, We're going to land in 1970, the year after Anton releases the Satanic Bible. In 1970, Anton publishes The Complete Witch, later renamed The Satanic Witch. Basically, just a guide to witches' workshops. He's running the time at the Black House. Uh, The publisher describes the book as undiluted gypsy lore regarding the forbidden knowledge of seduction and manipulation. It's all about secrets women can use to manipulate and control men, and in my opinion, it's trash. It's just a straight-up money grab. Anton, Anton divides people up along a clock by things like personality type and physical appearance making weird claims uh, such as that two slender people would never desire each other, uh, a man with masculine, muscular, inverted triangle type uh, of a figure would never be sexually submissive, uh, men across the board are attracted to the smell of women's menstrual blood. Like, that's actually his advice in this book. And, and if that last thing was true, the best-selling perfume in the world would smell exactly like period blood, which is not the case, thank God. You know, just, damn, baby, smell good. That's fucking sexy. Are you wearing a new perfume? Or did you just take a dirty tampon out of the trash and just rub it all over your neck? In, uh, in August 16th, 1971, Newsweek article titled Evil Anyone, they have a picture of his daughter, Zena, captioned, Building a Better Race. And they quote Anton's goal of the church being the creation of a police state, which <laughs> the weak are weeded out and the achievement-oriented leadership is permitted to pursue the mysteries of black magic. Okay, it's going on a little bit off the fucking rails now. We need to allow ourselves to be, uh, you know, we, we need not allow ourselves to be mistreated, right? We should be free to enjoy our lives, not worry about the judgment of an angry God, right? And we don't hurt kids, right? Or animals needlessly, correct? Okay, exactly. That's what I thought. And that is why we need to create a police state where the weak are destroyed and the strong can figure out how to finally make these goddamn spells work. I'm sick of not being able to fucking teleport. I've been working on it for two goddamn decades. Can't even fucking levitate because of the idiots just. Distracting me. We need a police state. 1972, The Satanic Rituals, published as a companion to LeVay's first book. And then it's a comprehensive collection of history's best, supposedly most authentic black magic rituals. He includes this directive to his followers. He says, now it is the higher man's role to produce the children of the future. Quality, more important than quantity. One cherished child can create. Or, or I guess, you know, maybe what one cherished child? Oh, one cherished child who can create. 
would be more important than 10 who can produce or 50 who can believe. In another interview, this time for Fling, he vows that he will enhance the growth of new, more intelligent generations if he has a chance by selective breeding. Then he says, this is terrifyingly related to Hitlerism. uh, So usually I can't even talk about it. Okay. All right. I mean, I've had similar thoughts, you know, I've had thoughts about, you know, what if we just fucking (laughs) didn't let certain people breed anymore? And by certain people, I just mean dummies. By, you know, chronically ignorant. But yeah, it does kind of ring a little Hitlery. So it's, you know, usually not good to bring it up. Mostly the satanic ritual is just a book about rituals. So fine, let's get into this. The Black Mass. All right, let's talk about it. People in robes, cult symbols, daggers, sacrifices, orgies. That's what it's going to be, right? Well, no. But, you know, it's, it's going to be kind of interesting. Unfortunately, none of the rituals have to do anything with kind of sacrificing, you know, babies or virgins. Which some Satanists do, you know, but just not the religious type Satanists. I mean, not really. I mean, if you're thinking like, well, that does happen. It has happened a few times. People have sacrificed people in many religions, many pagan ones. Like think about the Aztecs we learned about a long time ago. And yes, people have, you know, sacrificed people in various little cults and then done it to, you know, the word Satan or the the concept of a, you know, demonic entity. But it's very, very rare. And, 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 and a lot of like, like a Levian Satanist wouldn't even consider that person a Satanist. That's, that's part of the problem with Satanism is that there's no central text, really. There's the Satanic Bible, but not all Satanists agree that that's what they're supposed to use. You know, there's no equivalent to the Christian Bible in Satanism. It's not organized like Satan. It's very loose. You know, the, the Satanists can arrange from occult-minded atheists, you know, hedonist kind of Anton LaVey types to, to just some goth teen anarchist who just hates Christianity and the world at large. You know, uh, and he wants to worship the Christian devil. So that, yeah, it's just, it's, so all that being said, this is LeVay's version of the black mass. I'm sure other people, but well, actually you're supposed to, this is the most agreed upon version. The, the one most closely linked with mainstream Satanism. So let's examine what this ritual entails. So LeVay, uh, he titles the section where he explains the black mass, the original psychodrama. And a psychodrama, I didn't, I'd forgotten what that means. It's a, it's a therapeutic technique defined as a spontaneous dramatization, role-playing, basically. Dramatic self uh, self-presentation for a person or a group to investigate and gain insight into their lives. So really, this is just a way to kind of be deprogrammed from Christianity is what uh, Anton intends with this ritual. And, and he even downplays the significance of it in that sense. He just says, the Black Mass is a valid satanic ceremony only if one feels the need to perform it. He says, historically, there is no ritual more closely linked with Satanism than the Black Mass. Long been considered the principal elective of Satanists who were assumed never to tire of trampling on crosses or steal unbaptized infants. If a Satan has nothing else to do and is independently wealthy, newer and more blasphemous versions of the Black Mass, uh, you know, have been invented in order to nourish their jaded existence. You know, that's what this kind of theory went. Though a titillating concept to many, it is without validity. As devoid of logic as the assumption that Christians celebrate Good Friday every Wednesday afternoon. Although the Black Mass is a ritual that has been performed countless times, the participants often were not Satanists, but would act solely on the idea that anything contradictory to God must be the devil. And again, that's important. You know, a lot of times someone who defines himself as Satanist is just fucking mad at the Christian God. Uh, And then he goes on to talk at great length about how most tales of Black Masses have just been propaganda tales spread by various historical Christian Christian denominations. You know, basically anyone who wasn't a member of a church or of the Christian church You know, they would use, you know, some kind of evidence of them doing something non-Christian as a way to justify burning them or or torturing them or, you know, expulsion from the community. And that sounds, you know, right to me, historically. Convince a community that someone is satanic and you can get rid of them. You know, see the Salem witch trials, see the Spanish Inquisition. 
thousands of other examples. Anton says black mass was employed as propaganda against uh, heretical sects and orders. Few cared about the finer points differentiating the witch from the Satanists. Both were one in the eyes of the inquisitors. Although it is safe to say that unlike the majority who bore the label of witch, those who conducted themselves satanically often earned their stigma. This is not meant to condone the actions of the inquisitors against such free thinkers and rebels, but to concede that they were a very real threat to the Holy Fathers. Such men as Galileo and da Vinci, accused of traffic with the devil, most certainly were satanic in the sense that they expressed ideas and theories destined to break down the status quo. The supposed high point of the Black Mass, alleged to be the offering to Satan of an unbaptized human child, was not quite the way the collectors of baptism fees gloatingly told it. And now Anton provides an interesting, as far as I can tell, doing extra research, accurate explanation of the original you know, kind of you know, black mass performed by many who called themselves uh, Satanists today. He says, Catherine de Chaise, known as Lavoisin, was a 17th century French businesswoman who peddled drugs and performed abortions. Lavoisin arranged rituals, charms, and spells for clients, all of whom wished to retain the safety of the church, but whose ineffectual prayers drove them to seek darker magic. This sort of desperate miracle-seeking is as prevalent today as it was then. In the performance of one of her more popular productions, a clandestine, highly commercial inversion of the Catholic Mass, Lavoisin provided authenticity by actually engaging willing Catholic priests as celebrants and sometimes using an aborted fetus as a human sacrifice. Records indicate that she performed over 200 abortions. The priests would supposedly celebrate the Black Mass uh, for her, they supplied the holy propagandists more material. If ordained priests were occasionally prone to take part in heretical rites, it is understandable when one considers the social conditions of the time. For centuries in France, many men became priests because they were from upper-class families, and the priesthood was expected for at least one son of cultured, well-to-do parents. The first son was to become a military officer or politician, and the second was sent to a religious order. So controversial was this arrangement that it produced a catchphrase, La Rouge et Noire, the red and black. If one of the young men happened to be of an intellectual bent, which was often the case, the priesthood provided virtually the only access to libraries and avenues of higher learning. It was to be expected that the hermetic principle of as above, so below, and vice versa would apply to gifted and intelligent individuals. An inquiring, well-developed mind could often be dangerously skeptical and subsequently irreverent. So that's why they would do these rituals. So there was a, you know, a steady supply of depraved priests, you know, depraved in quotes, ready and willing to celebrate satanic rites. And he says, the 17th century priests who celebrated the Black Mass need not have been intrinsically evil. Heretical, most certainly, perverse, definitely, but harmfully evil, probably not. The exploits of Lavoisin, which have been recounted in such a sensational manner, if simplified, reveal her as a beautician, midwife, lady pharmacist, abortionist, and someone who had a flair for theatrics. Nevertheless, Lavoisin gave the church what it needed, a real honest to Satan, Black Mass. Lavoisin put the Black Mass on the map and so succeeded in working some very real magic. You know, this is what LeVay thinks. Far more important and more potent than the spells she concocted for her clients. She gave people an idea. Those who lean to the ideas expressed by Lavoisin's rights need little encouragement to attempt to duplicate the rights. For those persons, the Black Mass provided a setting for various degrees of perversity, ranging from harmless and or productive psychodrama to actual heinous acts that would substantiate the Chronicle's chronicler's wildest fantasies. Depending on individual predilection, those who received inspiration from the likes of Lavoisin could either affect a therapeutically valid form of rebellion or fill the ranks of the Christian Satanists, miscreants who adopt Christian standards of Satanism. 
And then Anton brings up another good point, writing, one fact is irrefutable. For every unborn baby offered up in the name of Satan during Lavoisin's clandestine playlets, countless thousands of living babies and small children have been slaughtered in wars fought in the name of Christ. Might not be fun to hear, but think about that for a second. How many people historically have died in wars fought, supposedly for the glory of God, compared to how many babies have in all likelihood actually been sacrificed to Satan? I would guess far more have died in the name of God and died fighting others who thought they were fighting on behalf of the same God. Not saying this point makes LeVay less of a tool in some ways, but, you know, valid. And now most of the context out of the way, LeVay, LeVay gets into the ritual, writing, The Black Mass which follows is diversion performed by the Society des Luciferians in late 19th and early 20th century France. While it maintains the degree of blasphemy or blasphemy necessary to make it effective psychodrama, it does not, it does not dwell on inversion purely for sake of blasphemy. Its prime purpose is to reduce or negate stigma acquired through past indoctrination, right? It's just a, you know, kind of a middle finger towards Christianity more than actually worshiping a devil. Requirements for performance participants consist of a priest, the celebrant, his immediate assistant, the deacon, a secondary assistant, uh, a subdeacon, which is a satanic nun, which is just a woman dressed up as a Catholic nun. But, you know, at, during the Satan thing, there's no nun in the Church of Satan. This is, again, just to fuck you to Catholicism. Um, there's, uh, a, a naked woman needs to be the altar. There's, uh, the illuminator who holds a lighted candle needed for reading, a thurifer, a person who carries the thurible, a container in which incense is burned, uh, and then a gong striker, an additional attendant, and the congregation. This is if you do it, you know, traditionally, proper. Hooded black robes are worn by all participants except two. The woman dressed as a nun, you know, who wears the, the habit, and the woman who's the altar, who's nude. So, Hail Lucifina. Uh, the priest conducts the mass. Conducting the mass is known as a celebrant. Over his robe, he wears a chasuble, that sleeveless garment worn by Catholic priests delivering a sermon, except one that bears, uh, you know, the symbols of Satanism, the sigil of Baphomet, complete with an inverted pentagram and inverted cross. And I've mentioned Baphomet a few times here. If you don't remember, because he gets, you know, that name gets tossed around. That's from Bonus Suck 23 from the Knights Templar. Baphomet is, is a made up thing. Baphomet is the deity that the Knights Templars were accused of worshiping in 1307 by a former disgruntled Templar named Esquin de Florian in France, a lunatic who said the Templars practiced sodomy, spat on the cross, worshipped a demonic idol called Baphomet, first ever mention of Baphomet, and then King Philip, if you'll recall, seized on those accusations because he was an unscrupulous piece of shit. When Pope Boniface VIII threatened him with excommunication for kicking clergy out of the government, he had that Pope beaten to death. He loved accusing people of sodomy, did it a lot of times, you know, when their demise would benefit him. And, the, and he owed the Templars a lot of money at the dawn of the 14th century, and they were coming to collect. And so to just paying his money back, he figured out a way to get rid of the Templars, and he ran with the Baphomet accusation and brought them to an end and had them burned at the stake. And since 1307, Baphomet, you know, for being heretics. And since 1307, Baphomet has developed its own mythology. You know, it's become this uh, a name synonymous with the beast, sometimes a demon, sometimes Satan himself, the dark lord of many names. And he's totally made up. Okay, so back now to the Black Mass ritual. The naked, traditionally hot woman who serves as the altar lies on the platform with her body at right angles to its length, her knees at its edge, widely parted. A pillow supports her head. Her arms are outstretched crosswise and each hand grasps a candle holder containing the black candle. When the celebrant is at the altar, he stands between the woman's knees. I mean, I, mean, I gotta say, this is way sexier than any sermon I've ever attended. I feel like I'd have a boner the whole time of the Black Mass ritual. The wall over the altar should uh, also bear the sigil of Baphomet or an inverted cross. If both are employed, the sigil of Baphomet must take the uppermost or prominent position. 
The cross occupies the space between the lower halves of the altar's legs. You know, there's all this exact detail of how you stuff this pageantry. All implements standard to satanic ritual are employed. Bell, chalice, phallus, sword, gong, etc. A thurible and incest are used. The chalice containing wine or liquor is placed between the altar's thighs. And on it is a paten, a fancy ceremonial plate, maybe paten, holding a round wafer or turnip or a coarse black bread, right? That's the... Uh, and in, in the symbolism of, you know, Satan's body, again, just inverting Christ's body, the chalice and uh, Peyton should be shrouded with a black square veil or a square black veil, preferably the same fabric as the celebrant's chasuble. Immediately in front of the chalice is placed a phallus idol, the ritual book placed on a small standard pillow, the illuminator standing to the side of the altar in the ritual book, more blocking, more stage instructions. Anton says music should be played. Something, you know, liturgical in mood, preferably played, you know, uh, on the organ. Maybe the calliope. <laughs> Maybe a little circus music. No. He says the works of Bach, Scarlatti, Marchand, and others are the most appropriate. Then when everything is set up, dude hits a gong, and the celebrant with the deacon and subdeacon preceding him enters and approaches the altar. They halt somewhere short of the altar. The deacon places himself at the celebrant's left, the subdeacon at the right. The three make a profound bow before the altar commence the ritual with the following verses and responses. The celebrant begins to chant in Latin. In nomine magni Dei nostri satanas, in robio, in altere domini inferi. And then the deacon and subdeacon chant, ad iom qui laficat minium. And the celebrant chants, ad justorium nostrum, in nomine domini inferi. The deacon and subdeacon chant, qui rigid taram. The altar girl starts to chant, hangy bangy, ufta, ufta, put the thingy dean, holdy wozy. Or something, you know. I mean, why not? Bill, Bill Gunn is just show up in this sucks. You probably love Satan. Uh, the celebrant says some shit in English now. Before the mighty and ineffable prince of darkness and in the presence of all dread demons of the pit and this assembled company, I acknowledge and confess my past error. Renouncing all past allegiances, I proclaim that Satan Lucifer rules the earth and I ratify and renew my promise to recognize and honor him in all things without reservation, desiring to return to his manifold assistance in the successful completion of my endeavors and the fulfillment of my desires. I call upon you, my brother, to bear witness and present me this nude woman. I offer to glorious Lucifer to pay tribute to his glorious hedonism. None, I call upon you to hand me the sacrificial knife. I will cut off some of this woman's pubic hair, just a little bit, just enough to complete the ritual, and then I need all of you to leave the room immediately so I can get to ballin', baby. Ballin', this sweet young altar girl, in the name of Satan, the son, and the ghost, coast to coast. I want to get my God rod baptized, if you hear what I'm saying. That's deep ballin', baby. All right, I made up everything after the bear witness part, but you get the idea. You know, a little father yode there. Just, just a whole bunch of, you know, pre preach and repeat now, back and forth, between English and Latin, inverting Christian, you know, rituals. Satan's the best, God's the worst. Then the celebrant replaces the chalice upon the altar, and with hands extended, palms downward, everything's backwards, recites the following. Come, O mighty Lord of darkness, look favorably on the sacrifice which we have prepared in thy name. The thurible and incense boat are then brought forward and the celebrant thrice sprinkles incense upon burning coals while reciting the following. Incentium mistud, ascendant ad de domini inferis, et descendant super nos beneficium tuum. The celebrant then takes the thurible and proceeds to the incense uh, to incense the altar and the gifts. First, he incenses the chalice and wafer with three counterclockwise strokes, makes a profound bow. Then he raises the thurible three times to Baphomet or to the inverted cross, bows again, 
Then, assisted by the deacon and subdeacon, he incenses the top of the altar, the sides of the platform, if possible, by circumnabulation. Oh my God. <laughs> circumnabulation. Ah, I fucking hate that word. I've seen it a few times. It just means to walk all the way around something. It's a fancy word for w- walking around something. The thurible is returned. The thursifer and the celebrant and deacon and subdeacon go back and forth quite a bit, you know, a whole bunch of Latin mumbo jumbo. Lucifero is way, evil ye, igbe, I'm ye, te. Aten say is ye, ethe, erst way, ost me, evil ye, uge, ever ye. That was actually Pig Latin, but you get the idea. Thank you, Internet, for a Pig Latin translator. Yeah, yeah, yeah. After all the Latin dark, spooky gobbledygook, celebrant then says, Therefore, almighty and terrible Lord of darkness, we entreat you that you receive and accept this sacrifice which we offer to you on behalf of this assembled company upon whom you have set your mark, that you may make us prosper in fullness and length of life under thy protection. That may cause to go forth at our bidding thy dreadful minions. <laughs> I am minions, correct me, it just sounds so fucking silly. For the fulfillment of our desires and the destruction of our enemies, in concert this night we ask thy unfailing assistance in this particular need. And at this point, the celebrant says what the special purpose is for, you know, like, like why this mass is being conducted, what's being offered. We are gathered, O Dark Lord, because we are sick and tired of Randy's bullshit. He always forgets his wallets, O Satan, when it's his turn to pay for dinner. He has plugged in front of the toilet not once but thrice at Rita's, at Rita's apartment for our weekly Dungeons and Dragons Forgotten Realms campaign. We are pretty sure he created a Yelp account under a fake name and one star Jamal's coffee shop when Jamal wouldn't hire him even though he had no coffee shop experience and Jamal was very clear about that. And he, he did his new hires, resume needed to be, you know, a certain situation and Lucifer, please plague him with the uh, uh, spiders or curse him with a painful bout of constipation for at least five days but no more than fucking ten and thank you, Doc Limp. Imp of the Netherwood, whatever. You get it. I have no idea what purposes they gather for. He leaves that open-ended. Whatever you want. Whatever you want to call upon Satan for. Anyway, after the purpose for the gathering is stated, the celebrant says, in the unity of unholy fellowship, we praise and honor first thee, Lucifer, morning star, and Beelzebub, lord of regeneration, then Belial, prince of the earth, and angel of destruction, Leviathan, beast of revelation, Abaddon, angel of the bottomless pits, Asmodeus, demon of lust, we call upon the mighty names of Astaroth, Negral, Behemoth, Belf, fucking bunch of dumb, weird, stupid names, bunch of made-up demon names. <laughs> and by the end, by their assistance, we may be strengthened in mind, body, and spirit. You know, yada, yada, yada. The celebrant then extends his hands, palms downward over the offerings on the altar, recites a whole bunch of Latin again. And then someone hits the gong. And then shit gets weird. The celebrant asks for a blessing, and then the subdeacon brings uh, forth a chamber pot, and the nun lifts up her habit and pisses into the pot. Not kidding. That's part of it. Showbiz! Getting some of that hot apple cider there. That's how they do it in hell. And then the deacon says about her piss, she maketh the font resound with the tears of her mortification. The waters of her shame become a shower of blessing in the tabernacle of Satan. For that which hath been withheld pours forth, and with it her piety. The great Baphomet, who is in the midst of the throne, shall sustain her, for she is a living fountain of water. And then they say some more Dark Lord, mumbo-jumbo. It gets pretty boring. And then the deacon fills the aspergent with the nun's piss, holds the aspergent in front of his dick, not kidding, and does a little hip thrust, you know, first face in the south, then east and north and west each time, you know, sprinkling out her piss. In the name of Satan, we bless thee, this symbol, this symbol, the rod of life. And then, you know, spills a little piss out again. And, and <laughs> then the celebrant takes the Satan wafer, you know, the dark bread or whatever, and uh, touches the naked altar lady between her breasts and then touches her vagina and then someone hits the gong. And then they say a bunch more boring shit. And then the celebrant makes a mockery of the Lord's Prayer saying, prompted by the precepts of the earth and the inclinations of the fresh, we make bold to say our Father 
which art in hell, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom is come. Thy will is done on earth as it is is in hell. We take this night our rightful due and trespass not on paths of pain. Lead us unto temptation. Deliver us from false piety. For thine is the kingdom and power and the glory forever. And then the deacon and the subdeacon, they start fucking jerking each other off. You know, they have to be hard at this point. And then the uh, and then the nun starts kind of like playing with her nipples, and then a fucking goat comes in the room, and then one guy grabs the goat and he starts ah, he starts fucking it ah, Satan, fuck the fucking the goat. Uh, no, doesn't get that crazy. Uh, the deacon and subdeacon say, "Let reason rule the earth." And then the celebrant says, "Deliver us, O mighty Satan, from all past error and delusion, and having our foot set upon the path of darkness, and vowed ourselves to thy service, we may not weaken in our resolve, but with thy assistance grow in wisdom and strength." The deacon and subdeacon. Say this a uh, bunch of times. Say some mumbo jumbo I mentioned earlier. Um, ah, it's just a tough word. Shemhamafrash. It's some Hebrew word meaning the explicit name. It's kind of a hail Satan in this particular ritual. And then they say more, a lot more Latin, a bunch of mostly boring stuff in English, more sacrilege. And then the celebrant says, oh, lasting foulness of Bethlehem. We would have thee confess the impudent cheats, the inexpiable crimes, the inexpiable crimes. We would drive deeper the nails into thy hands. Ooh, getting real sacrilegious here. Press down the crown of thorns upon thy brow. Bring blood from thy dry, dry wounds of thy sides. And this we can and will do by violating the quietude of thy body. Profana of the ample vices. Abstractor of stupid purities. Cursed Nazarene. Impotent. Okay, they fucking go on and on and on. Smiting people. Legions of hell. Crashing down the gates of heaven. Uh, the murders of our ancestors are going to be avenged. And then she gets super weird again. The celebrant inserts the wafer into the vagina of the altar lady. <laughs> Not kidding. Removes it, holds it aloft to Baphomet and says a bunch of shit in Latin. And then says, vanish into nothingness, thou fool of fools, thou vile and abhorred pretender of the majesty of Satan. Vanish into the void of thy empty heaven for that wert never, nor, nor shall thou ever, ever be. And then the celebrant raises the wafer and dashes it to the floor. I was hoping he's going to eat it. And he gets trampled by him and there's fucking trampling. The guy's ropes. Ah, get, get out there. Get rid of that stupid wafer. Bah! And then they hit the gong a bunch of times. And then they drink wine from the chalice and then a lot more back and forth with Latin. And they do a bunch of bows and make little fucking devil horn signs with their hands, not kidding. You know, saying stuff like, Ave Satanas, which is, you know, Latin, Hail Satan. And then the celebrant says, let us depart. It is done. And then the deacon and subdeacon repeat that. Snuff out some candles. And they head out to, I don't know, probably finish playing fucking Dungeons and Dragons. Or watch Lord of the Rings, whatever. Probably maybe get some food. Maybe get some uh, matzo ball soup or something. Probably hungry after all that chanting. And that's it. You know, very sacrilegious, very blasphemous, but no babies are killed. The craziest thing that happens is the celebrant, you know, puts a <laughs> wafer in the altar's vagina, but then doesn't even eat it. I expected more. It all reads, but it all does read out like I expected after getting to know LeVay a bit. You know, it reads like some goth teenagers just mad at their Christian parents. You know, people interested less in pleasing the devil, more interested in just trying to spook some Christians. Reads like a, it reads less like a real religion again, and just, it's more of a rebellion towards religion with, with some practical, like, live your life advice sprinkled in. Well, LeVay now in his 40s, after these books come out, he's, he's tired of the hands-on nature of his home workshops. All weekly public ceremonies in the Black House come to a close in 1972. Responsibility for satanic activities shifted to the dozens of satanic grottos established around the world. Anton would say, I realized many people were joining our ranks simply because it was a guarantee of friends or because they wanted the glory of passing tests to earn degrees. Much like the Lodge Hall Grand Poobahs. You know, he's tired of, you know, as an organization grows, he says group activities only cause contention, drain vital energy that could be better applied elsewhere, eventually becomes counterproductive. Teaching people that they're all right and society is all wrong, 
that the only ones who really understand them that they can relate to are within the group is damaging to them in the long run. <laughs> Wait a minute. He's not talking about the Clothed Curious group, is he? <laughs> no, no way. No way. Our group is awesome that way. We, we have a good echo chamber. <laughs> Hail Nimrod. Yay. Uh, 1975. Anton continues to make a living selling Satanist literature. Also works as a Hollywood consultant. A guy, a journalist named Dick Russell wrote Anton LaVey, the Satanist who wants to rule the world for Argosy Magazine. And he wrote it while he followed Anton from Hollywood uh, to Durango, Colorado, for the filming of The Devil's Reign. And they uh, finally ended the interview with LaVey in Mexico City. Dick also wrote about how LaVey had recently become all but inaccessible to the public at this time, become a mythical recluse, which I guess works for his image, you know. It's time to, you know, he can't bother with talking to people. He's got to work on his dark potions and shit. Four years later, mid-April 1979, in the issue of the Cloven Hoof, <laughs> the newsletter of the Church of Satan, Anton LaVey announces a new phase for his organization, the development, promotion, and manufacture of artificial human companions. Yep. Sex robots. The Dark Lord focusing on sex robots. This phase of LeVay's life gets super weird. That's coming from me. Uh, what could make robots, you know, what could they have to do? What, what could they have to do with Satanism? Over the next few months, LeVay explains in a series of follow-up articles what he has in mind, including methods of construction and how this new phase ties directly into his vision of the growing Satanic movement. Few would become privileged to ever see, you know, his work, his, his dolls. He offered to showcase his weird sex doll as art. I'm sorry, he was offered to have, you know, the showcase his art, but he declined. I, I did find a video uh, online of him, you know, standing in front of his dolls. They're, they're just kind of some shitty mannequins. Not going to go deep into the sex, doll, sex dolls here, but it, it seemed to consume him for his later years. Essentially, he thought that sex robots were going to promote healthier interactions between humans by giving the weirdos an outlet for all the weird stuff they wanted to do to other people if other people didn't want those things done to them. Which, you know, again, I kind of agree with him on that. Uh, you know, bring on the Satan sex robots. Anton meets Blanche, uh, May 1st, 1984, 28 years to the day after he founded the church. She would become the author of the official biography, the source we leaned on for a lot of this timeline. And she would become his last long-term romantic partner. Anton would leave Diane for her. Diane had gotten way too old. She was 42, yuck. She might have great pubes, oh my heck. Blanche was a little old for Anton's taste. She was 22, Ugh. But better than 42, you know. Anton was still super young. He was only 54. Uh, Levain is in, in the 80s saw a growing movement of what he considered to be the second wave of Satanism. He saw an entire generation practicing, whether knowingly or not, versions of Satanism. Even the heavy metal devil horns, you know, people given, he saw as part of this satanic wave. He said, for every one of those kids you see at a rock concert holding up the sign of the horns, not knowing anything about it, there are maybe five more kids who have read the satanic Bible. I doubt it. Uh, does giving the devil horn make you satanic? I don't think so. I do that, you know? I like that thing. For me, it's more of like a rock and roll or like, fuck yeah. I don't think it's, I don't think it's like, yeah, Satan. Uh, I don't know. We'll see, we'll, we'll, we'll see, we'll see how this maybe change. Maybe, maybe I'll end up behind an altar. Maybe we'll be chanting weird shit in Latin in a couple years. By 1988, Anton's in financial trouble. His ex, Diane Hegarty, files a lawsuit against him, wanting to be compensated for all her help forming the Church of Satan, spousal support. He files for bankruptcy in 1981 because of this lawsuit. He stipulates under oath that he owned nothing more than 50% of the house his parents had given jointly to him and Diane, along with personal items in the house. Never recovers financially from this second divorce. His final years are subsidized by California state aid. Assessors declare his house is in such poor shape, it's nearly worthless on the real estate market. The house no longer exists, by the way. It's a duplex now, 6114 California Street in San Francisco. Family members stated that as early as late 70s, the Leves were near poverty frequently having to rely upon Anton's father's generosity. Jesus. 
it's hard to respect this guy. You know, dude was writing about all this shit, uh, about being, you know, selective breeding and being superior and don't waste your time helping people who won't help themselves while he lived in a house mommy and daddy bought for him. In his 50s, still living off of daddy's allowance. How pathetic is that? A middle-aged man putting on a fucking devil horn costume and a robe, hanging out with nude women with pentagram necklaces, living off daddy's money. Oh, dark lord, thank you for making me your powerful high priest. Thank you for bestowing your secret dark wisdom upon me. I have an evil favor to ask. Oh, Satan, could you please, please work your way into daddy's mind? Please convince him to give me more of my inheritance now, oh, great Beelzebub. Pretty please, Baphomet. I, I need some new robes, but I'm low on money. It's been hard to get work at the strip clubs lately, Satan. They, they want to hear the new music. They want the Motley Crue, the two live crew. They don't want the devil's organ anymore. Please get my calliope career back on track, oh, great Dark Lord. August 5th, 1991, his ex, Mrs. Hegarty, granted a judgment against LeVay. She wins, uh, you know, more than a million dollars. So now he's, now he's really broke. Man, if only his magic worked. It's almost like this proves his magic never worked. You know, you'd think he'd be able to curse his ex so he could win a divorce battle. The Black House, all the treasured artifacts therein, ordered to be sold within 60 days. All the proceeds supposed to go to Mrs. Hegarty and her lawyers. Later in 1992, LeVay writes his fourth book, The Devil's Notebook. Just contains a bunch of essays about, you know, weird shit, Nazism, terrorism, cannibalism and stuff. No one really reads it. By the beginning of 1993, one of Anton's longtime comrades, San Francisco hotel owner and multimillionaire, Donald Werby, buys the black house, allows the black Pope to live there again. Diane doesn't love it, but, you know, she gets a bunch of money, gets several hundred thousand dollars, and uh, he gets to uh, avoid, you know, being out on the street, I guess. November 1st, 1993, the Day of the Dead in Latino Cultures, Satan, Xerxes, Kanaki, LeFay was born. Figures it'd be a Polish name worked in there. Mm-hmm. He and his new lady, Blanche, actually named their kid Satan. So that's fun. And when you Google images search, yeah, he looks like a dude who's named Satan. Very gothy, very, very dark lordy. Antana released an album in 1968 uh, called The Satanic Mass. You can hear on Spotify, Pandora, YouTube, whatever. Never sold well. And then in 1994, he's, you know, needing money. He releases another album called Strange Music. And in 1995, he releases Satan Takes a Holiday, and it is fucking terrible. We have been on a really bad music theme lately, starting with Father Yod. The Calliope, maybe it was worse. This is worse than both. This is a little track from Anton LaVey. I'm guessing you're curious. This is from Satan Takes a Holiday. It's called Answer Me, and oh, it's just, it's just kind of sad. It's like a romance Satan-y kind of vibe. Oh, it's kind of dramatic, you know? It's a ballad. Answer me. <laughs> oh, my love. Just what sin have I been guilty of? Ah. Tell me how I came to lose your love. Oh, my God. Please answer me, sweetheart. It never gets better than that. Dude, you're fucking the, you're the black Pope. You're the high priest of the church of Satan. Justin Bieber has more edge in any of his songs than that one. Gosh, Satan was real. He'd be so embarrassed. Dude, stop crying about this girl you want back, you fucking pansy. Come on, Satan up, you son of a bitch. February 22nd, 1995, Anton and Blanche, they're expecting to have a friend and local church official over for dinner. According to Blanche, just before they began to get ready for the evening, little Satan took his first steps, their little boy. <laughs> so weird to me. Come here, Satan. Uh, Satan, no, you have all your juice, Satan. 
No, you do not get a cookie until you finish your juice, Satan. Uh, Blanche says of this night, we ordered Chinese food. And while we were eating, we listened to the master tape of what you just heard. But they listened to the full length thing of Satan takes a holiday. And then Anton suddenly closed his eyes and slumped sideways. And he flatlined. <laughs> Listening to his own album temporarily killed him. It's that fucking bad. I don't doubt it. He couldn't handle hearing you himself. Yesterday. Ugh. Uh, they, they revive him, you know, they revive him. They bring him back. He, la- he lives a little bit longer. He's hospitalized five times the last six months of his life. Then on October 29th, 1997, he dies. Fearing what one of his fans or enemies would dig up his body and hide it or worse, he opts for cremation. Zena comes forward to proudly announce that she had cursed and killed her father, this weird family. Oh my God. And that takes us out of today's Time Suck timeline. Good job, soldier. You've made it back. Barely. Some quick final thoughts after a word from our final sponsor. Uh, Time Suck is brought to you today by Woody Spirit Supplies and more Spectral Emporium. Today, Woody has given you 50% off your purchase of his new Beelzebub earplugs. Hi, everybody. It's me, Woody. I know you've heard a lot of evil tunes today, and that's not good for your soul or your mind. So keep Satan out of your sound holes with his new Beelzebub earplugs. Here's what you hear if you're not wearing them. I believe that love was here to stay. And here's what you hear when you do wear them. So that's pretty cool. I mean, do you want to hear something like this? Or this? So get my bills above your plug. Please, I need the money. Sales go directly to my Venmo. Charles took over my PayPal account. And he controls my cash flow. I'm down to drinking mouthwash. I can use your help. I, I hear Charles coming. Save me some drinking money. Wee. Okay. All right. Well, you know, nice, nice to hear from Woody. It's been a while. Uh, so now you know more than you ever thought you would about modern Satanism and his founder. Some say the tr- truth is stranger than fiction, and sometimes it is, but not in the case of Levian Satanism. Now, the fiction is way stranger than the truth here. His lies are more entertaining than his actual life, uh, and, the, and the superstitious beliefs about Satanism more entertaining than the reality. Dude never conjured up a single demon. He wasn't some scary dark lord. He was just a compulsive liar. He liked to play dress up and live off Papa's money. But he did have, I do think, some great thoughts about how to live a life free from some of the judgmental, shame-based constraints that religion does hinder some people with. However, he stole most of those insights from other sources. You know, I don't know. But worst case, at least he shared some good humanist info. You know, he shared, shared some bad info too. Don't rub menstrual blood all over yourself if you want to get some guys to chase after you. I mean, it might work, but <laughs> with the guys who are chasing you, they're going to be fucking creepy. Uh, and of course, there's numerous other forms of Satanism, other similar ideas in the modern world, from the Satanic Temple to Luciferianism, set worshipers, Christian-based duotheists, even a thing called transcendental Satanism. Interest, uh, interestingly, though, none of them really kind of uh, pick the Christian Satan and say, let's just be evil for evil's sake. Mostly, they just seem to be trolling Christians, mostly atheists who just are also want to troll Christians, uh, you know. Most mostly just preach a basic message of don't worry about God's judgment because God's not real. You do you. And I found all this fascinating because so different than what I was taught growing up. I thought, you know, Satanists were actively worshiping the devil, trying to like bring actual demons in the world and fucking eat babies and <laughs> kill virgins or, you know, whatever. But, I, but which never made sense to me. Like, why would you worship the guy who wants to burn your soul alive for all eternity? I mean, I know some people are masochists, but that's some next level masochism. But it's not that. Satanism is basically, again, just atheism and pageantry. A couple rituals. Uh, what I don't understand, you know, uh, with all of this kind of magic stuff is it, it, where does the magic come from if there's no God? 
you know, or, or create a force equivalent of a God. I don't know. Maybe that's just me trying to make sense of the, un, the unknowable. I guess, you know, just like, you know, atheists can believe that we're here and we don't need to have been built by some, you know, deity. I guess you could also choose to believe that magic is real and also not built by some deity. So that's it. That's as best as I can explain it. Let's uh, rehash some of the best uh, moments from it or the most important points with today's top five takeaways. Time suck. Top five takeaways. Number one, Anton was less an evil dark lord and more of a bullshit artist and kind of a dork. He was complicated. He was a troll and a con man. Also brave enough, I will say, to push contrarian and mostly, you know, pretty common sense, you know, uh, opinions uh, in a culture that, you know, could have gotten him killed. Number two, Anton never had sex with Jane Mansfield or Marilyn Monroe. And I also doubt he had a donkey wing or was a judo badass or smuggled guns to the Israeli, Israelis. Number three, most Satanists, really just atheists, uh, people interested in various occult practices who typically aren't big fans of Christian dogma. They almost never sacrifice anyone to the devil or have orgies, which is kind of a bummer when you're trying to tell an exciting story about them. Number four, Anton LaVey wrote the Satanic Bible. How evil does that book sound? But as you now know, not very evil and neither is the Satanic Church. Not much of a church. Levain Satanism, not really a religion, you know, it's some rituals and some philosophic principles. It may qualify as a religion for tax purposes, but no, no, no more of a religion really than being like a Freemason. You know, it's pragmatic advice wrapped up in some blasphemy, twisting a Christian commandment such as honor thy father and mother into don't harm children. Number five, new info on the Church of Satan's website's frequently asked questions page, which I love. One of the questions is how to sell your soul to Satan. And their answer is hilarious. Satanists do not believe in God, Satan, heaven, or hell. There are no souls and nobody to buy them. If you want something out of life, get off your lazy butt and work for it. That is their quote. And I like that last thought. Thank you, uh, Satan. Time suck. Top five takeaways. So that's it. Church of Satan sucked. Thought it would be so much more evil. If you did too, and, and you're bummed that it wasn't more evil, well, head over to scare to death, you silly Satan pants person. More fear and spook over there for sure. Uh, thanks to the Time Suck team. Thanks to the Queen to Suck, Lindsay Cummins, High Priest of the Suck, Harmony Bella Camp, Reverend Dr. Joe H.J. Paisley. I bet I bet Joe's wing is way bigger than Anton's. <laughs> I shouldn't say that stuff. He's, he, works, he works here. Thanks to the Bit Elixir app design crew. Thanks to Access Apparel. Big thanks to the script keeper, Zach Flannery. Uh, if you want to meet more time suckers, I keep seeing more and more, uh, you know, uh, shows more and more out in the wild. It's awesome at the airports, wherever. Join the Cult of the Curious private Facebook group. And for more social interaction, head over to the Time Suck Discord group from the Time Suck app. Link for both in the episode description. Next week, the Manhattan Project, recent space lizard vote winner. The Manhattan Project was the code name for the American-led effort to develop a functional atomic weapon during World War II. Uh, you know, spoiler alert, it worked. The Manhattan Project was started in response to fears that German scientists had been working on a weapon using nuclear technology since the 30s and that Adolf Hitler was prepared to use it. It's a suck that involves Nazi scientists, Cold War tomfoolery, conspiracies, some actual science, nuclear bombs, and a lot of interesting info. So get on it. Now let's see what's interesting, uh, you know, in the, uh, going on in the, in, the, in the cult of the curious in the Church of Time Suck on today's Time Sucker Updates. Updates. Get your Time Sucker updates. Since it's the week of Halloween, let's get spooky with a spooky update. Time Sucker and Reptilian Nicholas Razzolo writes, Hey, Dennis, Nick again. I don't reach out like this, but I figured, you know, that while this is about an older episode, 
uh, is my problem is a fucking creepy one. I've been trying to play catch up and I've just recently finished the two-parter for the 20th bonus episode. When I started listening, I felt like I got creeped out by something hanging around me. I assumed it was just my imagination due to the fact that it was nighttime. And I was in an apartment with no lighting because we were in the process of remodeling. So all I had was a flashlight. It was tolerable until the, the second part of your episode when you started going over the exorcism and playing Anna's audio logs. I started hearing the walls and ceiling creaking and the units were empty around me. I finished up, grabbed my shit, started walking for the door, and then there was a thud. I didn't want to look back, knowing I didn't want to psych myself out. Since I had more stuff to grab from the unit, so I, you know, I got the stuff back to where we kept our tools. I go to grab my tape measure just really quick, and the fucking thing is gone from uh, my you know, back pocket. I then went back to the room with my flashlight in hand, grabbed the rest of my stuff, can't find the tape measure. So I look around as I get into the bedroom, which is directly down the hallway from the door. I look around, the tape measure is in the corner, directly to the left of the door. I don't know how to explain what happened. I don't believe in demonic possession or ghost, but my sister has complained for a long time about a man standing at the end of her bed. It's harder to pretend that it could have just been a series of odd coincidences. I can't stop thinking about the damn, uh, you know, tape measure. How would it travel 20-ish feet? You know, but now that I share this shitty story, I am proud to share that even with only the first half of your podcast listened to, I'm officially a fully fledged space. Wow. Well, thank you for sharing that. Thank you. I appreciate that, Nicholas. Nicholas, if you're getting spooked, you might not want to listen to the last time sucker update in this update. It's an even spookier ongoing tale. Yeah, man. Yeah. It sounds like you weren't sounds like sounds like you weren't standing in that corner, at least your recollection where the tape measure would be. That is weird. I, I had something last night in the studio. I forgot to talk about this. <laughs> I, I just ignored it. Went about my business. But I sat my stuff on the little couch in the Suck Dungeon studio when I came in to do some uh, late night work last night to get this stuff finished. And the dogs, sometimes when they come in, there's these little black uh, racket balls that we throw for them. And they're like, they'll be under the couch. I set stuff on, on top of the couch and then the ball shoots out, like rolls out very like from under the couch. But it was weird because I wouldn't think the air would travel through. It's not like, um, it, was just, it was just weird to me. I didn't put anything next to the couch where the air would have pushed it out. It was very odd. It's like I went and sat some stuff down and a ball just whoop, rolls on out. Okay. I love that people are sucking. Thank you for sending that in. I love that people are sucking uh, who are from my tiny part of the world where I grew up in central Idaho. Idaho sucker Richard Pate wrote in uh, saying that he knows some of the same people I knew. Dear Grandmaster Sucker, longtime listener, first time writer. I love the suck. Praise Bojangles. I recently started listening to old episodes when I got uh, uh, you know into, the, into time suck. I found it quite interesting how small the world is your youth group teacher and her husband were my music teacher and principal. Mm, the cooks. I grew up in a small town, Horseshoe Bend. Oh, know it well. About 150 miles south from Riggins. I have so many things to say about the suck. We'll write again in the future. For now, I want to say thank you for the countless hours of entertainment and for helping me get to work every morning. The suck keeps me going. Has recently become a point of conversation for me and my 10-year-old daughter who love the episodes I allow her to listen to. I get it. Thank you ever so much, your loyal sucker, Dick Pate. Man, the cooks. Can't believe you had them too, Dick. I hope they were less weird for you than they were for me. I bet you know all about the scandal that affected them uh, in, you know, in John's later career. I could do an entire time suck on John Cook. My God. Two more messages. Uh, first, a sweet one from Autumn Schaub, Swab. Sorry, sorry, Autumn. Autumn writes, Dan Cummins, I want to thank you and your team for the amazing show the other night in Pontiac, Michigan. It was one of the very rare places where I felt like I truly belonged. I know it sounds weird, but it's true. I could tell I was the youngest person there. I just turned 18, but I talked to other people and they understood me. I've never related to other teens, so I've always listened to stand-up as a way to cope. I hope you know that you and others like you have gotten me through my teen years. I'd say I have the mentality of about a 28-year-old dude, so high school has made me senile. 
Also, I love your comments on autism and the anti-vax movement. Autism should not be treated like a disease. I have high-functioning autism, and I guarantee you that most of my hardships lie in the ignorance of others. I feel like uh, Aspies are forgotten in the whole autism movement because we aren't seen as autistic, but rather weird, odd, or lazy. I tell people I have it, and the answer is always, oh my God, I would have never guessed. See, you can't tell unless you are familiar with Asperger's. You'd assume that it is nice, but it is not. I'm expected to behave exactly like a neurotypical person. And when I don't have, and when I don't, I have been called inconsiderate, lazy, and mean, even by my own family members. I fight a battle every day, but because I fight it so hard, it gives the impression that there is no battle at all. I've been repeatedly denied support at school due to my good grades. I want emotional support, not academic. Barely no one sees all my work and the constant fight against my battles to seem normal. And a much lighter note, uh, you should do a show in Marquette, Michigan next, next year. If all goes well, I'll be attending college there. I don't know how many people would show, but it would make for a nice vacation. If you go in the summer, you can see pictured rocks, do lots of hiking and see waterfalls. And you can literally pull off to the side of the road to swim in Lake Superior, the best great lake. Thanks for listening to my frustrations and just for your general existence, Autumn. Well, you made my heart happy, Autumn. I just loved hearing about how you belonged. I loved uh, getting into the cold, commu- uh, the cold to the curious, right? Get in that Facebook group, meet more people. Meet more people you, you who understand you and, you know, and uh, you can enjoy their company. I, I just love that we have that for you and I love having you in it. And now a last story. This is, this is a scary one. From Sunny Hill, nice little spooky way to, to exit right before Halloween. Sunny writes, this is so long. Maybe it could have been used on the My Story section of Scared to Death, which we're going to get into this week. Oh, hail the suckiest of all suckers and Lucifina's devotee. First off, I want to thank you enormously for what you've created. I came across Time Suck after the boys at Small Town Murder. Love, James and Jimmy. Kept talking about you. Everyone needs more silliness, laughter, and knowledge in their lives, so thank you for providing that trifecta. Also, a shout-out to the entire team for producing it because I know it's a team effort. Uh, you make me want to imagine hitting less people during my road rage, anger, at all the idiot drivers out there. Yes, it is a team effort. Anyhow, shadow people. Be afraid. Be very afraid. Without a doubt, I am certain they exist. Exactly why they exist, I'm not sure. A strange succubus-incubus hybrid? A creature from another dimension? Universe? Ghosts? Bojangles? Holy nutsack? Who knows? What I do know is that from the early age of five years old to about when I turned 18, I was hunted by one of these. Sorry for what is about to be a somewhat long message, but this thing was so much a part of my life during my formative years and affects my sleep to this day. I say five years old because that's about the earliest memories I have of it. The shadow person existed for me in my dreams as opposed to being something seen in real life for the most part. I remember the first attack so vividly. Every nightmare after that got pushed back in fear that remembering them would bring on more attacks. The first encounter with it was in a dream of me sitting in the living room playing while my parents were watching TV. It snuck from various corners in the room to behind the couch my dad was sitting at, just staring at me, waiting, waiting to grab me at the right moment when my parents were unaware. It was dark, tall, lanky, seven or eight feet tall, long, tangling arms, long fingers, and you could stare at it all you want, but there were no features you could really point out. Just like a shadow, if a shadow were given form. It had eyes, but you couldn't see him. Its face was a blur. I have shivers right now writing this. Its goal for this dream and every dream nightmare that would follow for the next decade would be to try to take me. I woke up screaming that night as it leapt for me. These nightmares would occur probably an average of three to four times a week, every one of them the same. Totally normal day-to-day scenario until it would appear. I could be dreaming about having dinner or playing outside with friends and it would show itself, creeping and hiding, trying to get closer. I somehow came to believe that if it caught me, I would die or at least not wake up. So every time I fought to wake up, every time that involved yelling at the top of my lungs, often to the dismay of my parents, actually rushing in from the middle of the night, mostly thinking an actual attacker was in my room. This goes on for years and years. I used to have a ghetto blaster that I used to record TV shows and play them back during the night. 
I found that having my brain somewhat focused on something generally helped to minimize these visits. Almost 40 years later, I still go to bed with the movie or audiobook playing. This went on until I was 18. I had learned about lucid dreaming and to some extent, you know, could control my dreams. Though I pushed out the memory of almost all these, I do remember the last time it happened. Perhaps not being able to feed on the fear or having a stronger mind to deal with it went away. I wouldn't even think about it for a second in fear of bringing it back. So I just put it out of my mind, never thinking about it until I was perhaps about 22. A friend and I went out to a secluded park after hours, just exploring a somewhat old fort uh, you know, that was located in the park. It was about 15 past midnight when it happened. We were walking through a hilly, wooded area and I felt something. You know that feeling you get when you think something or someone is watching or following you? I looked up to the top of the hill, illuminated by the moonlight and saw something move. I immediately froze, asked my friend, do you see something? At that moment, we both saw something moving along the crest of the hill and freaked the fuck out. Ran out of the woods, left the area. Without telling my friend, I asked him what he saw. He described a tall, dark, lanky creature moving from bush to bush. And dark it was. All you could see was a solid shadow. And in that moment, he would have put it at about nine feet tall. This was the first time I had ever seen it in real life. As for my friend, he and I never talked about that being from my, or I, I had never talked about that being from my nightmares to him, not even to my parents, not to anyone. None of my friends knew I had those nightmares. I never talked about it for fear they would bring it back again. All was quiet after that for the next few years. I would purposely not think about it and it seemed to work. When I was about 25, I was lying on my couch watching a movie and I drifted to sleep. At the foot of the couch across the hallway, I had a mirror hanging on the wall. Out of nowhere, this shadow person appeared in the mirror and reached out of it, trying to grab me. Jeez, that just gave me the chills. Uh, I jumped up right away, yelling and recoiling. It was gone. This seems so real that to this day, I don't know if I was dreaming uh, what I was doing. If I woke up, if I saw the thing appear in the mirror, if I saw it when I was asleep, I'm now 45. That was the last time I saw it. It affects my sleep to this day. If I get solid four hours of sleep, that's amazing. At one point, I got into a cycle of going to bed around 4 a.m., getting up at 7. I figured and still do that if I get to bed super tired, I'll at least have decent sleep for a few hours. Most of my nights were spent tossing and turning, waking up half a dozen times. I usually get in bed for five, six hours these days. The most amazing sleeps I get are uh, the first day of recovering from a flu or cold when the previous night was spent with a fever. I sleep so good the day after that. In my late 20s, I used the fairly new internet to look up shadow sleep monsters and sure enough, came across stories of people having similar experiences. It was a relief in some way knowing I didn't just make it up. I'm sure there's a shitload of stories now online, but I'll just stay away from any more research on that subject. Listening to the time suck suck of the shadow people was the first time since then that I'd heard anything. It was around 1979 at the age of five when I first encountered this. I'm from a very small town in Quebec that has like three TV stations or had them at the time. For this thing to exist in my mind at that age, at that time period, without being influenced by outside sources for so many people around the world to have similar experiences, I have to think it exists. As much as we know of the world and universe now, it is so naive of us to think that we just, uh, that we know now, that what we know now is the sum of everything that could possibly exist. Just like it, I was, you know, it was naive 100 years ago when we generally thought we knew everything, it's naive now as well. So who knows what's out there? Who knows what really exists? I've had many experiences over the years. This was uh, long enough. Sorry for the long email. A devout space. There's Sunny Hill. Fuck, man. Thank you, Sunny. Yeah, that is crazy, man. That is crazy. I joke about all this kind of stuff. You know, joking about Anton LaVey doing all this weird, dark magic. But what if we would have figured it out? What if he would have actually figured out how to do some spell that actually works? You know, it just takes one time for it to change everything. And then instead of uh, making fun of these silly gooses, I'm fucking way more scared. <laughs> so part of me wants that to happen. Part of me does not. Thank you for your update. I'm glad the shadow people no longer haunt you. And that's it for Time Sucker Updates. Thanks, 
time, suckers. I needed that. We all did. Well, that's it for today, Time Suckers. Uh, man, I swore I, I tried so hard to make this so much shorter. Happy Halloween. See some of you in Columbus, Ohio. If you're going to worship Satan this week, I hope your Satan church has better music than anything ever done by Anton LaVey. And uh, yeah, <laughs> hey, enjoy cotton candy on the main stage and just keep on sucking. <laughs> hey! Oh, shit.